Good morning, happy Friday. Welcome to Adam versus the Man. We made it. We made it. We made it. Yes, congratulations. It's a casual flannel Friday at Adam versus the Man. Got to go into town this morning, pick up some packages, got a lot of exciting stuff coming here for the Freedom Factory for the studio. But we are taking off. Unfortunately, we're not going to get to use this for the next two weeks. Just big heads up I had for everybody. Next week, I'm going on the road. We've got a really exciting pre-Thanksgiving family road trip planned. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to uh, getting some more travel time with my wife. And then Thanksgiving uh, week, we are going to be off with Adam versus the man. So sorry. Uh, we're, we've told uh, our, our dear leaders that uh, we're taking the week off. Uh, for Thanksgiving, uh, because it is a government-sanctioned holiday, and uh, that they should make sure that nothing happens important during that week. So we're going to make sure that there's no important news or anything you're going to miss either. But no, thank you for supporting the show, making it possible to do what we do. Oh, we got the Producers Club chat pulled up here in Telegram. It's been a lot of oh, Brad Brown saying good morning. All right, thank you. Now, this is uh, really critical to what we're doing with the show. It's so much fun to have this as our as our behind-the-scenes team. And you can join the Producers Club. You go to adversesaman.com. Please check it out. Support the show by joining us on Patreon for $10 a month. Uh, I don't think we have a contest today. We got, we, got, we got two great guests, and we've got a big pile of headlines. We've been, we've been kind of behind. I, I mean, I hate to admit this. Like, even today, even today, our top stories are, you know, election shit. Shit about people who shouldn't matter in your life if you're doing it right. Like, and that's oh man, I feel like a, it's been it's been a fun, unique challenge trying to uh, meet my journalistic responsibilities because I, I do take it very seriously that if you give me your time two hours a day, five days a week, I, I better make sure that you're being properly informed. So today we, we are we're gonna just we got a ton of headlines we're gonna get through in the first hour of the show. We're checking with the audience here in just a few minutes with comment Jim Freedom in Phoenix. But we've got Allison Ross coming up at 11 o'clock, and uh, she's a symphony musician who's had some interesting issues with uh, freedom and COVID policy and stuff going on. With, I, I know it's like we watched. She came recommended by uh, Libertarian State Party chair. And then we've got journalist Hannah Cox, who wrote the article, Oregon Takes the Lead on ending the war on drugs. So I think, you know, appropriate, appropriate uh, way to end the week here, right? Celebrating the winner of the 2020 election, drugs. Yeah, and that was a little bit of a weak bong hit. It was like the last one in my bowl this morning. Which reminds me, I really need a personal assistant to make sure my bong stays topped off in the studio here. I mean, I, I, we can barely do Adam versus the man without one. But if we, if we can get some help, we do We do uh, really appreciate what we've got right now in the Producers Club. And uh, as I was saying, go Adam versus the man, find the Patreon link, sign up, $10 a month. It's a lot of fun. It's our behind-the-scenes editorial team. Most of the news stories that we share on the show are ones that people have shared and we're discussing in the Producers Club chat. <clears throat> a lot of the guests that we get, especially now that we're taking out, you know, the sort of automatic 
uh, if you're a libertarian candidate, you get to you get to come on out versus me and have some fun, get a little free promo with us. But uh, most of the guests that we get uh, or suggestions for guests uh, come from the producers club. But excuse me, uh, we are we are looking for interns if people want to help. Right now, you know what we're up against with Adam versus the man. And man, we got we got a couple stories about this today. Oh, the censorship, the censorship, it burns. It stings. Makes me want to cry. Uh, but it's it's because I have you know an active and engaged audience that that keeps us going. You know, uh, the, the core team with with Comet Jim Freedom, co-host out of Phoenix. Executive producer C.J. Abernathy in South Dakota, Marcus Pulis, guest booker out of Indiana, and Mercedes Damrotowski out of Nebraska. And this is a it's it's such an, an interesting position to be in. And, you, and this isn't hard for anybody to figure out. And, and I'm not I'm not the only case of this just because my producer calls me the most censored man on the internet. And I like that. he's a good hype man that way. It's widespread and right now in the age of coronaphobia it seems the powers that be have come up with the not excuse I, I, I want to say justification but it's, it's not a justification they think it is I guess that makes it an excuse right they, they, they've come up with all sorts of new excuses for censorship because no, it's for the children. No, wait, no, no, that's not the COVID narrative. I'm sorry, I screwed up. No, no, it's for grandma. It's for grandma. Don't, don't hurt grandma. If you know, if you, if you're outside of your house without a mask on, you're killing my grandma. You know, and and if you if you buy into that, you go well. Yeah, I mean, and so here here's the the, the trick with the censorship issue right now, and and, and like the, the the real crux of these excuses is that there is. A, a unique deadly threat from this virus. And because of that, certain fraudulent or even simply irresponsible or even simply incorrect misinformation is a threat, just like yelling fire in a crowded theater would be. Now, you can yell fire in a crowded theater if there's a fire, right? And you can say, hey, uh, you know, we need to get the heck out of here. But if you do it as a fraud, Here's the nerdy libertarian explanation of what yelling fire in a crowded theater means for freedom of speech principles. But uh, you can, you, if you yell fire in a crowded theater where there's not a fire, you are committing a fraud that, uh, I mean, is, is thought to result in damages from a stampede out of the theater. And, you know, we... we it, it, even say this, you go, oh my gosh, it's been so turned on its head for Corona. It, it is the people who are fear-mongering who are yelling fire in the crowded theater, and the consequences are the government overreaction. The consequences are the forced unemployment crisis, the, the real estate crisis, the commercial real estate crisis, the eviction crisis, uh, everything that we're experiencing now. In reduction of quality of life because of the economic restrictions that the corona has been used as an excuse to justify, which, of course, as we know, by government, serve the purpose of government to keep the super rich getting richer at the expense of the rest of us. And I mean, see, I can, we get stories about this today, too. You know, just how billionaires is blowing up their wealth in this when everybody else is suffering. You go, 
at some level. I'm pretty sure it was designed that way. So they want to think that what we are doing here, uh, you know, and, and I'm still a violation of YouTube policies. We're still not broadcasting on my main channel until another strike clears. It is, it is a strange, it, it is a strange time we are living in, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. Woo! You know that Chinese saying, may you be blessed to live in interesting times is supposed to be a curse, right? And and we screw it up. I you know, like to take it literally. Well, I take it literally intentionally. We are experiencing this incredible acceleration of the human experience. We get to be a part of this. We get to, we get to we get to be alive right now when humanity is going through all that we are going through. What an incredible time to be alive. So they want to say that those of us who are saying, "Oh, you got a question." The WHO. <gasps> You're not allowed to do that on YouTube. Uh, we got to question local authorities on their COVID polls. Oh, you can't do that on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, we got a lot. We're going to pack into the first hour today. Two exciting interviews in the second hour. A couple other quick promos to get out of the way. Adam versus the man merchandise. I just, I went in town. I, got, I know I got something. We're going to get pictures. I got a big pile of mail I got to pick up. Uh, uh, shout out to Whatnots and, and Ashford for, for their mail service, their package service. Because, you know, it's funny, when we moved out here, I was so excited. Like, well, we lived down three miles of private dirt road, but UPS and FedEx still comes out here? Well, one UPS driver broke an axle on my road. Not my road, not my road. My road's fine. The road that connects to, to my road from the pavement. And they stopped delivering out here. It's like, you're paying for this delivery service, and they're not doing it? They say they will. Yeah, it's a little, a little shady. So now i got to go into town to get packages. Not a big deal. Because we were kind of close this morning, and I'm, I'm in my casual flannel Friday attire. So check it out at anniversaryofman.com slash store. CJ's put together an amazing selection of merchandise. Lots of really cool stuff in there. And uh, then the other things, of course, to support. Oh, by the way, yeah, if you're a producer's club member, he always puts on the screen there. You can get 15% off and free shipping on merchandise because, you know, we just want to get the word out. Uh, I mean, even for me, like, this is, I am, I, of all the things, like, I'm known for, I, I'm in the position now where, like, I am able to make enough money doing other things that it go. I end up, I still end up losing money on that versus the man. This is, this is a labor of love, and I hope it is for, I mean, even for anybody listening, that if you're watching right now, Watching live right now, or if you're watching or listening not live right now, please share this show. Yeah, CJ. No, I get those numbers. We're not. No, we're not doing it again this morning. CJ. CJ wants to get into the YouTube numbers. No, not today. I don't know. Maybe we want. If you want to go long today after a guest, maybe we cover all the news. If you eat your peas and carrots and do your journalistic responsibility first, you can whine about censorship for as long as you like. But, yeah, we're going to get through some headlines. But first, uh, please, the other way to support the show, through our affiliate, CigarFederation.com, promo code ADAM10, ADAM10, all caps, gets you 10% off. And, uh, yeah, we're doing it. We're doing it. Cigars and Sunsets tonight, tonight, tonight. I think we got to move the time up. Oh, geez. Uh, what time is sunset right now? I, don't, I can't check my phone. Uh, let me see. What time is sunset in Ashford, Arizona? I'll talk as slow as I can type, right? 
All right, 5.25 p.m. today. Wait, you're it. That's Phoenix. Yeah, we're, I guess, because we're taller here. We had, uh, our, maybe it's the mountain range on the other side. Our sunset is two minutes <laughs> off from Phoenix. We have 5.25 today. So uh, we'll do it at 5 p.m. 5 p.m. Uh, mountain time. 4 p.m. Pacific. It, I just, it's not even mountain time. It's Arizona time. Yeah. yeah you know why I live here? Because we don't do daylight saving. No, we don't. We're too cool for that. We are uh, We are already, by that one policy, seceded from the union of time control. Yeah, government thinks it can manipulate the time. Crazy shit. All right, and then finally, makethemdebate.com. Mercedes, our debate manager, wants you to check this out. Makethemdebate.com. Check out my profile. It's a really cool way to pledge funds to make some debates happen. So without further ado, let's – oh, and finally, hey, here at the Garden of Freedom, you know, you got to follow us on Instagram. We got we got we got another litter of kittens on the way. Give me some cool photos. Stay tuned. Follow us on on, on Instagram, please at the Garden of Freedom. Jim, comment, Jim Freedom. Happy Friday. What's up, brother? Let's get Jim on stage here. We got some comments from the audience. On? Thirteen minutes into the show. <laughs> yeah, check this out. This is a uh, funny. Our usually our first commenter and first person in the show is don't be a status, but R H S C T J made the first comment. He said, in before status, and status gave the dramatic uh, scream at the sky. No! <laughs> Maybe that, that could be like our con- Remember when first was a thing? Really, like yeah. on the internet? Like, yeah, first, you just like copy the and it's like, did we outgrow that? Or did I just like stop paying attention to childish shit on the internet? Did I outgrow that? <laughs> <laughs> well, part of it is like, I don't read... Like I, I mean, and I, I, this is one of those one of those sort of dilemmas of modern social media engagement. Like, do you read the comments? Did you, did you read the comments on your own stuff? And it's not, and in some ways, you're like, yeah, of course, I want I want to be responsive. I want I want to be listening to the public and 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 hear their cries of anguish to be the be the voice of the people. And it's like, yeah, but. YouTube comments is not the people, not representative of the people. You know, if you think racism doesn't exist because uh, you're because you're white and privileged, <laughs> go what read any YouTube comment section of any black dude doing anything on Twitter, and you're like, oh, I'm sorry, on YouTube, Twitter's Twitter's different now. Uh, but YouTube comments, there's something about I'm sitting here watching a video and my ADD like troll brain kicks in. Not me, I don't do this stuff. You know, I get the phenomena that the ADD troll brain kicks in, and that's that's why YouTube is notorious for having the most vicious comment section. But yeah, it reminds me of this Hannibal Burris joke. Y'all know Hannibal Burris, one of my favorite stand-ups. He uh, he's talking about watching porn where dudes are watching like interracial porn, and they're like they're they're saying racist shit in the comments. And it's like, wait a second, you're being racist while beaten off? Wait, wait, wait. So, like, I hate that this black dude's fucking this white woman. <laughs> but, man, this couple's got such great on-screen sexual chemistry. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure if that's okay. how it works, but that's, right. yeah. You and in this our... category of internet silliness, first, in before status. <laughs> 
Uh, Weasel Darty is uh, chiming in. Happy Friday, Edinburgh's the man. Cheers. Uh, hey, you know what? Here's the contest today, and uh, we might we might have to come back to see you. You got to leave early, Jim. But this we have something very important missing in the studio, and I don't know if you know what I'm talking about here, Jim. But this this bong, the the, the new studio bong for the Freedom Factory studio, doesn't have a name. Oh yeah. Name. Name this bong. We're gonna get some comments on that. I know. And then, um, we, we, you know, by the way, before I forget this, we haven't said this for a while. If you want to name the studio in the Freedom Factory at Gardenia, we pay three hundred twenty dollars a month for this building. If you wanna, if you wanna take that on, you can name this, and we'll say every day. Adam versus the man coming to you from the Don Jacob Jindelheimer Schmidt Studios. Whatever you, whatever you want us to say to announce it every day. Uh, yeah, we'd love to have someone sponsor the studio directly. Uh, Loki209 chimes in. He says, YouTube comments hurt more feelings than Donald Trump. <laughs> oh, if I may just finish the thought on that. What I was getting at, Jim, is like I don't I don't read comments. I don't need to. I'm I'm I wanna be responsive. I mean I, I have so much bandwidth, time and energy and attention to listen. To read the news, to connect with the audience, to, uh, you know, show appreciation and love for people around me. And because of that, I mean, I really, I, I don't need, I don't read, I don't waste time on the general comments. I have Jim to do, com- to look at comments during the show, and that's different because we're paying attention to our live audience and interacting with people live who, who have the initiative to tune in and, and to be proactive and be a part of this. And I want to be responsive to those people as opposed to just the general YouTube, Facebook commentary, right? And to people who are, you know, again, in the producer's club and active and engaged with the show, those are the people I want to be concerned about being responsive to. Yeah. Plus there's a, there's a, there's gotta be like a, a time where you just cut it off. Cause I literally made a YouTube video five years ago of the pastor of this church, literally saying that we need to kill all homosexual people and that's how we would get rid of AIDS off the planet. That was he was saying. So I made a viral video of that. And I literally, to this day, five years later, still get people commenting on it. Like, oh, this video is out of context. And I'm like, how do you take that out of context? But I'm addicted, though. And it's not that often. I do still respond whenever I get one. But it's like, when, do I, when am I going to stop? You know, when are you going to just say, oh, God, I got to stop? Well, I, I, again, this gets to, you know, this is a little inside baseball for, like, the, I mean, everybody's on social, everybody's a social media influencer now or a star or whatever. Uh, you know, everybody's concerned about their, their public reactions through social media. And, what you know, it, it, at some point for me, there was, like, a critical mass where I was like, if you really want to get to me, it's not that hard. I can ignore whatever I want. There's just too many emails, too many comments, too many requests, invitations, blah, 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 you know. And I kind of got to that point where the at first, for me, keeping up with comments on YouTube was just not possible. It was like, well, I'll get a sample. Yeah, here. yeah. You know, like I, I could have, like when I was doing, when I, I guess when, I, when we weren't getting shadow banned on YouTube, and even now we, we hear reports of comments getting deleted on, on videos occasionally. But... Uh, when, I, when we were doing consistent like two million views a month, 
This is like I if I, if I read com if I tried to read all the comments, like that would be the only other thing I would do, and I'd go right. fucking nuts in a week, like literally lose my mind in a week trying to do that. But 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 now, I think I just out of getting old, <laughs> out of time in the game, you know, you gain that that perspective and and you know you, you realize as a conscientious consumer of information, not just in terms of news, but as a, as a general information diet, you know, you, you just, you go, no, no, I can put that in my brain. And, and I, for whatever it is for you, if it's reading comments on your videos or your posts or other people's content, just, just every now and then, you know, do a digital detox. Like with, like with cannabis, you know, I, I try to take a, a, a week off every month or two and, and, you know, just recalibrate my perspective you got to do the same thing with, with all the info, even data coming into your head, uh, with all of your food habits and everything else. Uh, the elimination diet, if you don't know what that is, it's, it's a way of uh, you, you eliminate everything in your diet that could cause an negative reaction. You go to the sort of blandest diet possible and make sure that, you know, you have a, a health baseline. Make sure that none of, your, that none, of, none of the negativity you're experiencing is a product of something that you're consuming, that you're doing to yourself. And you got to do the same thing with information, with habits. With everything else, and just you know, I, I hope that's a you know a positive thing that people get out of the message of this this show is that uh, you know positive self awareness and life awareness and, and living better. And so, all right, that was enough of a sidebar rant on that one minute. <laughs> yeah, right on. Okay, uh, just a couple more. Kareem's checking in. He says, "What's up, localization for life?" Uh, he has a good question too. <laughs> localization, baby. <laughs> that's funny. He says, hey, Adam, what would you recommend to people outside the USA when it comes to implementing effective localization in their communities? All right, outside the USA. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't presume to know the exact political circumstances of everybody around the world. But what I would say to answer your question is that I, I, I think of kind of like uh, several different approaches uh, to, to localization as, as the mechanism to achieving a voluntary society. And you got to decide what's appropriate for, for your situation. So from the top down, there's this, uh, this presidential campaign strategy of, uh, you know, a national consensus-based radical decentralization through the political process. And again, radical striking at the root of the problem. Henry David Thoreau, for every thousand striking at the branches of evil, there is one striking the root. Doesn't mean extreme, but radical, as in not skirting around the edges, not, you know, and bullshitting around the issues. And we need to address the heart of this. And so we can have that national or critical mass of bigger consensus to take government apart from the top down, get rid of the federal government, state governments, county governments. And that would be if you had that consensus or the potential for that consensus at that level. And this is this kind of helps you answer your question for specifically the local levels. What do you have consensus to do? And if you go, like, so I, and by the way, I'm not pretending to like, hey, I'm just sitting here trying to be president and dissolve the federal government resign on day one, and that's like the only thing that, no, there's, so here, here's, but, but I think that there is that potential for America to, to shift the national conversation to, to get that consensus, like in, in the relatively near future. You want to accuse me of, of, of optimism? Okay, guilty as charged. But even if I'm wrong about that, running and having the conversation at that level in, because of the nature of American politics means that we have a really unique opportunity to spread the message more efficiently 
than we could without using just the platform of politics. And this is what I say for everybody. If you're a libertarian, you want something good to do as a libertarian activist, run for office as a libertarian. And you can make it like a, a paper campaign, minimalist, tiny uh, involvement, all the way up to a full-time job and anywhere in between. You, excuse me, you get to set that uh, along with so many other parameters of your campaign. Don't feel like, oh, i got to run for office. I'm put on suit time. i got to be a douchebag like the Republicans. No, it's different. I can't think about the Republicans for being douchebags. I have to finish that sentence. It was Republicans and Democrats. That's what I was going to say. Okay, but then the next level are the, the sort of mid-level, uh, so as opposed to like, you know, top-down uh, political consensus and then, you know, bottom-up local activism. Uh, the, the sort of mid-level is secession. So, like, if California decides they have a consensus to secede from the union before the federal government collapses or we decide to dissolve it as a, as a nation, as a people, or a critical mass of the electorate, you know, giving the politicians the excuses, uh, then you, you, you might have California secede independently. With Biden coming into office, it looks like you might have Texas go first. Who knows? But what that would create is a, is a cascade effect that we're actually already just barely starting to see around the world. But there is a cascade effect that comes from Brexit, Catalonia, the Scottish independence vote. Uh, I, I feel almost embarrassingly ignorant because I'm citing three European examples here because I know there are others all around the world. There's the, you know, the, the revolution in Thailand, which isn't exactly about localism, but at least overthrowing the monarchy there and, and taking power away from the central authority. And maybe in your country, that's all you get. Maybe you don't get to have a fundamental restructuring right away because there's a more urgent priority when you have a vicious national or even local government that needs to be put in its place first. Because remember, libertarianism is not about, I mean, our, our goal is not just, like, an, or at least our immediate goal is not, hey, let's have a voluntary society tomorrow. Our, our immediate goal is, you know, what, what can we do as individuals to alleviate human suffering? So, again, in that sort of mid-level of possibilities, what consensus is, is possible uh, at, at a sub-national level for secession or significant reduction in state power? That might be the priority. And then finally, bottom-up, what we're doing here in Gardenia, buy land, declare sovereignty, micronations, uh, community-based autonomy. There are a lot of examples of this all over the world. Uh, if you want to jump into that as a research project, uh, start with the uh, Wikipedia page on micronations. Do a quick survey of, of some of the, the things that are just funny protests and some of the things that are more you know, serious exercises in sovereignty. I could have given a longer answer, you know. <laughs> I think you're muted there, Jim. Jim? Yeah, I muted myself because the dog was barking. I didn't want my dog I didn't want Falcor's barking to interrupt your monologue there. <laughs> uh he also asked if we were using OBS to stream just so he knows we're using StreamYard. And we love StreamYard, it's a great platform. Other people should check it out. That's Absolutely. A, little free, a little free uh advertisement. And last one before we get to go, Loki 209 secession needs to come very slowly or it will – secession, I think he meant – needs to yeah. come very slowly or it will result in war. I don't know if the federal government would literally go to war with California if they 
but they've been doing it slowly, so I guess. Well, so yeah, well, hold on. I, I can. I, here's here's my objection to that. Very, very very simply, it's not the speed with which it happens that determines the peacefulness alone, and it's not even the most significant factor because it could be that if you do it slowly, you give the central authority time to prepare militarily and resist. And maybe they're so effective in their resistance of your independence that they squash your independence movement and there's no war, and that's worse, right? Could be that by the time you give them enough time to, to raise an army but not squash you, you go independent, and then there's a war. Or it could be that you do it so fast they don't even know what happened to them, and then, oh, my gosh, you guys are independent now. And then they have to, and, and, and boom, it's done, and then they have to convince their people to raise an army to go take over this now independent nation. Maybe that is more of a deterrent of war. And I, I, I generally agree that slower is going to be better as a trend, but not because of that, but that it, it means you're more likely to be doing it right and by political consensus and, and peacefully. But uh, sometimes it's like, yeah, Band-Aid, rip it off. And I think rip it off. I, I, the odds of, of what, what determines today, like if, if cattle, like – We've covered over the years. I mean, I think like we started covering the, the Catalonia story. I remember we did one for the the old Anne versus the Man in Virginia in 2011. And, and if, you, if you look at the the history of the, the modern Catalonian independence movement, the national government of Spain has done some really disgusting, violent, coercive shit to suppress it. Uh, they've got leaders in exile. They've had people go to jail. They've had voters threatened. They've had police physically stopping people from voting uh, and, and roughing up people going to try to vote for independence for Catalonia. Why, why do they get away with that? It, it's because there is enough support from the people of Spain to maintain their loyalty to the national government for them to get away with it. And if 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 you can change that over time, then, you know, take the time and get that, you know, greater level of consensus. But if you can't, and, you know, even with Brexit, and I'm not I'm not an expert on, on these things, but yeah, from a distance looking at Brexit and the back and forth and the bullshit and how much time they've wasted, it's not that there was a war. I mean, it's kind of a propaganda war between the economic interests who uh, would rather have uh, the U.K. be independent versus part of the European Union. But there wasn't a war. There's just this wasteful waste of time and back and forth and uncertainty of policy that cost the people more than uh, doing it quickly would have done. I mean, if, if if Britain had decided, okay, boom, we're independent. You know, here's the deal. Then and we're going. What they what they have done. I mean, can, can you credibly say that Brexit isn't colossally clumsy at best? <laughs> Yeah. Is colossal yeah. a word? Mm, it is now. <laughs> Hell yeah. So is impactual. Yeah. Impactual. <laughs> a good one. Okay. All right. Uh, we got, we're got. we at the bottom of the hour here. You should probably race through some news before we get to both. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we, have, we, have a, we have an unofficial entry for the bong naming contest from CJ. Ma bong. <laughs> to go with Ma Road, maybe, maybe. All right. So yeah, let's let's get into it. Headlines. We still. I, I mean, this is where I'm like, I put politics and our politicians first. 
TheWeek.com has this headline. Trump is reportedly very aware he lost the election, but is putting up a fight as theater. And, you know, very biased source, obviously. President Trump is reportedly challenging 2020 election results primarily just as theater as he puts on a performance for his supporters, despite knowing he will not begin a second term in January. Trump has still yet to concede the election to President-elect Joe Biden, and by Thursday morning, he was continuing to fire off baseless allegations of widespread voter fraud. But NBC News' Peter Alexander reports in a White House aide that Trump is very aware that there is not a path to victory for him, and is putting up legal challenges as a kind of theater for his supporters believing that they deserve a fight. And Trump is changing the game, for better or for worse. For me, I, I, I actually generally appreciate that, you know, when people say Trump is the most libertarian president we've ever had, I go like, yeah, marginally, because every president kind of has to be, because freedom marches forward and demands the government do less injustice in the world every single day. Like, that's the course of human progress. I, I recognize that as, as government has gotten less vicious over time, President Trump doesn't represent a radical buck in that trend. And this is a bit of a bigger sidebar for me in the sense that I know, I understand government is growing, federal government grows, uh, even under Trump, believe it or not. Yes, I know, the Republicans, the party of fake small government. And it just seems to get bigger and bigger every time they're in office. How about that? And with, with, with that, uh, again, the overall viciousness, the level of injustice, I think is still continuing to come down. Every generation, again, today, we celebrate the winner of the 2020 election, the, the, the drug war, or excuse me, the drugs who are winning the war on drugs. And this thing about Trump, and I've said this from the beginning, that like not only does it make sense for him tactically to, to, to have this, frankly, otherwise embarrassing. I mean, we know Trump is beyond shame. Uh, and really, every president is essentially, if you can, if you can go on TV with a straight face and say, yes, I sent drones to kill all those civilians and children because it was in the bitter interest of peace and humanity. You have no freaking shame. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, you know, Trump is no different, but he's brought a different veneer to this. And, he, and, and in some ways, like I say, he's smarter than the rest of them. Uh, in terms of if you're going to be a government frontman puppet of a president, might as well be the one who gets more money out of it and branding out of it and personal enrichment out of it. And Trump go, the, the idea that Trump can say, well, we really won, but we, you know, well, we, we technically lost, but we really won, and, we, yeah, and it was stolen from us. That's good for his brand. Now, and here's the other funny thing. If he gets out as a one-term president, he can run for re-election in 2024. And all of this sets him up for that. I mean, and, but see, even if he doesn't, even if he knows that he would lose in 24, just the fact that he's a one-term president who wants to be a continued force and media personality, talking about starting a network that would challenge, like a Meganet, you know, that would challenge Fox. He's, I, I, and, and also, here's the other thing. There's, there's, there's the criminal angling on this. The, the great tradition, I mean, going back, I, I don't know, I probably probably to, to, to the, our first illegal constitutional president, George Washington, there's been a great tradition of presidents pardoning those who went before them because they want to be pardoned after. And Trump knows that he 
is so unpopular on the left and has done enough things that if Biden wanted to buck that tradition go after him, he could. So him doing this, Trump making it hard for Biden to transition could simply be him saying, hey, man, pardon me for everything and make me a cabinet member and, uh, and I'll make this easy for you. Or whatever it is that he's leveraging to increase his brand, you know, over the next four years as he holds out, you know, I might run in 2024 as, as sort of the bait for that. And, and, and Trump, I mean, he is really taking a turn into a political machine. The next headline from the Hill is McEnany predicts a quite large turnout at Million Mega March in D.C. And it's like, this is, this is part of the Trump brand messaging genius that suckers fall for. It's going to be. Quite large. How large? Quite. How big is the quite large crowd? It's quite large. You can't. Of course, we're out. They use this really effective sort of vague language, uh, and Trump really is the master of this. So it's within, of course, uh, Kaylee McEnany is is, is picking up on the strategy. White House Press Secretary Kaylee McEnany said on Tuesday, excuse me, Thursday. That she expects the turnout at Saturday's Million Mega March in support of President Trump to be quite large. See, part of the genius of this is that the political opponents will go, it was tiny. It was like quite large. And then they, they, they can't be held to that. But it, it sort of identifies people who are, you know, falling for this both pro and con. The event is going to take place in Washington, D.C. on Saturday, one week after news networks projected that Trump had lost the presidential election to Democrat Joe Biden. Trump has refused to concede the race, and the Saturday events seem intended to bolster him. As McKinney said on Fox, I think it's going to be quite large. Um, from what I'm hearing, don't have an estimate for you. Yeah, see, no specifics. It's going to be interesting to see where this goes. And one of the, the, the myths that is being held out by by Trump and the Republican Party now is that they are the censored party. And there's this uh, dangerous mythology that they have successfully injected into the American paradigm. And this might be something that really goes back even further, at least in the modern history of the Democrats and Republicans, in that uh, Republicans, you know, Democrats are the ones marching the institution forward and Republicans are the conservative ones holding it back. But that conservatism as the, you know, uh, place for the rebels who want to start, it's, it's lip service. And so it, it might be just a continuation or a morphine or modernization of that mythology of the Republicans being the loyal opposition party is that they are being censored. They are the ones whose, whose voices aren't being heard. They're the victims of social media bullying and and. And now, obviously, the point of this is not the powers that be. They don't care if they get blue-flavored fascism or red-flavored fascism. They'll go with whatever serves as the best pacifier for you. So when they see that they need to censor the truly challenging messages of libertarianism or anything that's legitimately Fundamentally, fundamentally challenging the current power structure, they they want to make sure they don't have a Streisand effect, that there's some kind of whiplash effect from that censorship where the American people go, wait a second, 
You're censoring what? Now we really need to pay attention to that. No, they don't. They want to avoid that as much as they possibly can. So what they do is they shadow ban and just outright block libertarians, and then make a big show out about uh, of censoring those extremist elements of the Republican Party. And now it's from KOTA TV territory ABC. Twitter blocks South Dakota Republican Party. Yeah, Twitter off the cliff recently. The South Dakota Republican Party is at odds with social media giant Twitter after Twitter blocked certain features on the Republican Party's website and their Twitter page. The South Dakota Republican Party attempted to post a press release to Twitter from their website backing President Donald Trump in his post-election legal fights. However, when they went to share the tweet, the link to their website, uh, it would not work. Excuse me, Twitter gave us a warning saying it, it was harmful content. And then we had to go to a help center. And they basically blocked our ability to tweet a link from our website. And that is where I noticed they were blocking the South Dakota Republican Party. And there is some legitimacy to uh, the censorship uh, in terms of uh, <laughs> there is a partisan fight. But I, I, what's the excuse for this? The election is misinformation. Well, if they can say that your your perspective on the or the you know the post election fight, you know, well, Trump actually won. That, that's misinformation. That's an opinion. It's it's a fair analysis. I mean, it, it, you're. I'm not going to sidebar and rant on censorship. Well, you see, he's got a comment here. You got to get to the part where Twitter warning in the South Dakota Republican Party. Sorry, at the minimum. Was there something I missed in particular on that in that article you wanted to to cover? CJ, jump on if you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. CJ's in South Dakota. Yeah, they said that, uh, I mean, you can't read the story and skim this headline without getting to Twitter. In addition to uh, Twitter also provided a warning on the page when you attempted to access the South Dakota Republican Party's website through a link at the top of their page in their bio. The warning said that the link you were clicking may be, quote, unsafe or have, quote, violent or misleading content that could lead to real world harm. So yeah, that's that's the part you gotta make sure that it's it's very clear uh, that we uh, have that one for the record. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you. Now back to the <laughs> idea of you know, fire in a crowded theater. It's that's the excuse. Like they're they're committing a fraud that's dangerous. But this is this is even worse than the COVID stuff because with COVID they sort of they sort of have a direct excuse. Uh, well, no, this is a health threat. If you give people misinformation, they die as a result, and you're liable. You're yelling fire in a crowded theater. But what's worse is that they're denying people the ability to to question uh, science from authority or policy from authority, and, and and see what you know. Question what science is it based on? Is it based on on accurate, reliable data, or, or is this just Propaganda nonsense or misinterpretation that's deliberate. <laughs> yeah, governments do that. Shocking, right? But what, what CJ is pointing out here is that it's reached a, a new level where now it's, well, if you support a politician that I don't agree with, that's dangerous. And that's the equivalent of yelling of, of the fraud. And... What I'm seeing now is that the the actual fraud of this censorship is, is at such a level where 
I think all, all the platforms engaging in this are, are discrediting themselves. But, you know, again, serving the bigger strategic point of the superclass in all of this, they want to be able to censor libertarians without people noticing. They want to, to contain the Streisand effect to uh, fellow statists. All right, so we got to breeze through a few more headlines to get into our guest who is standing by. MarijuanaMoment.net. Marijuana reform omitted from Biden's transition plan on racial equity despite campaign pledges. Oh, Democrats lie, <laughs> too, about their campaign promises and pandering to their base? Yeah, shocking, right? Uh, so we got a few COVID headlines in a block here from the Hill. Elon Musk knocks extremely bogus COVID-19 tests after taking four tests in one day. He took four tests, two came back positive, two came back negative. And you go, yeah. Yeah, now the fact that Elon Musk, a guy who's going to, who is, who's walking this, walking a very interesting line. Remember, a lot of his business and and funding comes from the government, comes from the establishment. You know, he can't piss them off too much. But and 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 even now, like just you look at how much money he's made over this past year and how much he's profited from this. Uh, how much of it is is him personally supporting? And who knows what he's doing behind the scenes? Obviously, his image is worth a lot to him. He's very conscious of that. He could be, uh, I don't pretend to be an Elon Musk expert, but I just pointed out this hypothetical that he could be behind the scenes uh, all all supporting coronaphobia and people freaking out and government lockdowns because he knows that he's going to make more money than anybody else in the world from this. Or him and, him and Jeff Bezos, right? And he's he, it's on a scale of billions. Billions, that's thousands of millions. I mean, I know you've thought of real terms for what, what you could do with a million dollars would mean. Well, try multiplying that by a thousand and then a few more times in your head, and then you might get close to a sense of how much money Elon Musk has made in, in, over this past year. So, you know, I, maybe he's supporting it behind the scenes and, and creating this public image for himself as the rebel questioning it. I, I, I would probably take, I'd say that's unlikely and have a more positive view of Elon Musk overall, and I'm, I'm very hopeful for every other way that he might be moving humanity forward. And this is really exciting that he's uh, even if it's, even if you want to be paranoid about Elon Musk and say maybe this is all just spin propaganda PR silly whatever. It's pretty cool. This is the flavor of it. And he's coming out going, yeah, tests are bullshit. Yeah, no, I wonder about this, and I, I mean, I have some personal stake in this. Is I have uh, family members uh, I'm going to be with for Thanksgiving who want me to get tested. And then I, like, wouldn't you rather I quarantine for 14 days, like, before showing up as opposed to take a test and then get the results? Well, apparently now there's one you can get by mail for three days. I haven't even looked into this. It's so dumb. Uh, and, and I don't mean, you know, my family members. You know, if, if you have, uh, you know, see, I have family members with two different categories of risk with this. One category is people who are older or immunocompromised. And they go, yeah, I get that the virus isn't a big deal. And, and, and they're mostly libertarian. You know, they're not going, oh, i got to wear a mask and crack down. And, blah, and, and try. But they're like, hey, uh, could you minimize my exposure through you if we're going to hang out under the same roof for Thanksgiving week? Reasonable request. And then I, the second category is people in my family who have a liability if they test positive for their jobs. <sighs> Yes, it's it's not them. 
based on their interpretation of the virus itself at all. But if your employer says, well, if you test positive, we're going to test you every week, and if you test positive, you're going to lose money, you're going to lose work, or you're gonna, your job's at risk. Can you blame those people for saying, well, shit, I'm going to be extra cautious now. I'm going to ask people around me to be cautious, and I'm, I'm, I'm now a mechanism of spreading that fear-based propaganda. Anyway, we've got to breeze through some of our other COVID headlines. If you guys have thoughts on this, we are going to check in with the comments in just a couple minutes before we go to our guests and uh, at the end of the show today. So, from Newsweek, corpse filmed in hospital bathroom as Illy's COVID ward pushed to breaking point. Video showing a corpse left on the floor of a bathroom inside an overwhelmed hospital shows the COVID crisis in Italy's third largest city is out of control, Foreign Minister Luigi Di Maio said. Uh, and, and I mean, I, again, I don't want to pick apart this story, but just to deconstruct the fear for a second, remember, we saw these headlines before in the first wave of corona, especially in Italy, where, oh, it's, it's hospitals being overwhelmed. And then we looked into that and it was like, eh. even the, the credible representations of this are hugely exaggerating things at best. And a lot of these things are fraudulent. And I would hope that anybody who's watching Adverse Man, at least any of our regular listeners, would know that when you see a headline like this, you got to stop and question and go, oh, are they trying to make some blanket statement based on an isolated incident? Uh, and, and, and say, well, because we saw this video of one dude dead in a bathroom, if that's really what it is, then uh, therefore you know, that's representative of all hospitals in Italy, as opposed to even a freak occurrence at that hospital. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, there's going to be a backstory that comes out where, it's not quite sensational enough to say the mainstream media lied about this or that element of it, but you're going to see more of this. And uh, the Daily Mail has this headline, and this is this is where we're going with this new wave of the second wave of fear mongering. Daily COVID-19 deaths spiked by nearly 19,000 for first time since May's infections hit record high of 144,000 in hospitalization surge. But Fauci says there's still no need for six week national lockdown. Um, and the, even that headline, oh, no, no, we don't we don't need to murder all your firstborn children. You just need to give us all your money. Oh, okay, well, that seems reasonable now, doesn't it? No, 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 we don't need a six-week national lockdown. We just need to suppress you and control you enough to make sure that we serve our corporate and banking class masters. Uh, uh. Get ready. Uh, winter is coming. Winter is here. Uh, this is this is the new fear-mongering, and we see even even worse when it comes to uh, about the virus itself. This is from Reuters. One in five COVID-19 patients develop mental illness within 90 days. Now, you could look at this. or diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder within 90 days. Um, this is a... Kind of reminds me of the, the uh, ban hydrogen dioxide. Figured out yet? Figured out yet? The ban hydrogen dioxide... Uh, petition where they say, yeah, we get people that say, all these facts about water. Well, you know, uh, thousands of Americans die every year by uh, hydrogen dioxide overexposure. You know, hydrogen dioxide can be extremely co coercive and cause this, this, and it's like, all these facts about water that get people to sign a petition to ban water. And if you go, well, 20%, nah, how much of this is exaggerated, manipulated, just completely fabricated? 
I don't even care to put the to, to waste your time uh, deconstructing this. We have some experts coming on next week. We might we might get into, into these numbers uh, in in future episodes. But you say okay to this quickly. Twenty uh, percent of those infected with the coronavirus are diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder within ninety days. What's the general population rate of being diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder? What is our ability now to diagnose any average mentally healthy human being with a psychiatric disorder because they check, check, check DSM-5 criteria? I don't, I don't trust it. I don't believe it. I, I don't, it, it, but I just I want you guys to be ready for this uh, because there's, there's more of this coming. Um, let's see. I, I guess um, we're going we're gonna to do another headline block. And uh, at the end, we're going to skim through a lot of our random headlines. But that's our critical corona news. Let's check in with the audience real quick before we get to our first guest. Any, uh, Jim, last chance, any critical comments or uh, names for Mabong? <laughs> All right, Peter says, I don't know if Jim's having tech issues here, but uh, Peter Yaples says, uh, they made a statement that COVID is running rampant in schools with six cases of Positive test, six cases is, is uh, rampant now, I guess. Yeah, something like, excuse me for rephrasing the typos there, but yeah, yeah. No, when you, you got to look at the, it just it, at some point, you train yourself to read these headlines and desensationalize them. Like you might see a headline today, COVID rampant in this or that school or school district or area or whatever. You go, what's rampant? Yeah, okay. Put it in perspective. Don't be a state that says Bong name. Justin Ahash, or Ahash, not many real libertarian names. The go out Bong. So if there's like, could you, Murray Rothbong? Is that, <laughs> I think mean, like from, uh, oh, um, gosh, now I'm like, what's, What's the movie? The, the Stoner classic where the where all the um, all the all the bongs and pipes are in. That's Wesley Pipes, dude. Um, why can't I remember the name of the movie? Uh, Bongnificent. <laughs> now, now we're talking. All right, I uh, like that. I uh, that might be the lead. Might be the lead. Bongnificent. Uh, Brexit is like Trump anti New World Order. Um, I don't believe that. I, I, what, I think what you just said there, if, if Trump, if, if I interpreted what you're saying right, because I kind of wanted to just, like, mess with your wording a little bit, uh, Brexit is like Trump, comma, anti-New World Order, period, L, bracket, LOL, laughing out loud, right? Uh, but is Trump anti-New World Order? Not really. I mean, current World Order, but serving him, but still consolidating power in, in his effect and his impact. No, I, Trump is Trump is absolutely pro-New World Order. And you know, there's there. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't try to even look at Brexit. I mean, I, I think Brexit is a good thing in terms of being anti. Consolidation of power, but is it possible that the current world order somehow 
wants that to happen in terms of like throwing throwing the people of Britain a bone. Oh, the system works. There's still a way out of, 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 of the European Union. You don't have to feel trapped. Maybe. But to call Trump uh, pro-freedom in any way other than lip service, not that he's not good at lip service, is just giving someone credit for their fraudulent image that they use to take advantage of people. So, no. All right, so last question before we get to our guest, Nelson Dilt, the third wow, Adam. You fell off worse than the dysfunctional Libertarian Party. I'm trying to hard to love everything you have done. I was a Ron Paul supporter, but smart enough to realize Libertarians only amuse each other and haven't went anywhere since 2012. Oh, you... You haven't went anywhere since 2012. Libertarians haven't went anywhere since 2012. If, if you think that's true, then I'm sorry you haven't paid attention. And speak of things of which you know not. Wasted energy and time supporting the Libertarian Party. Choose the paradigm, brother, and go Republican and defeat the rhinos and commie left. Oh, yeah, because it's working so well for Rand Paul. Look at how much he's shrunk the federal government despite Trump's attempt to grow it. Oh, wait, Trump was fighting the New World Order and failed? Oh, right, no. Absolute bullshit. Uh, it, is, it is, oh, yeah, now we're jumping in half-baked. Duh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, no. It's funny, I remember all the lines, I remember all the actors, I remember uh, Wesley Pipes, I can't remember the name of the movie. But this uh, this idea of going to the Republican Party as a libertarian no, no. It, Ron Paul had a unique opportunity to basically troll the Republicans by going, hey, you know how you said you mean this? Well, here's what it actually means. Do you mean it? No, you don't. You're full shit. And he was able to get major traction and reach a lot of people that way. But as we've seen in the years following Ron Paul, the long-term strategy that was known as the the Ron. See, I, well, I think of the Ron Paul strategy. I think of like Ron Paul's success of reaching people with his presidential campaign, not the failure of the long-term Ron Paul strategy of working within the GOP. All right, uh, algorithms aren't letting the Libertarian Party be seen. Yes, thank you, Nelson. All right, but let's uh, let's get to our guest. Very important that we don't keep her waiting any longer. Allison Ross joins us this morning. She's a symphony musician in the Kansas City area. Infuriated by virus policies ruining concerts, and and and, and I, I gotta say that just the effects across the music industry as a whole, uh, even from a distance, I go wow. But to to, 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 to get uh, Allison's insight here is going to be very interesting. Now she she's got a, a unique situation relating to COVID as being uh, immunocompromised herself, and still maintains the principled anti-mask mandate position. So. Uh, Allison, thank you for joining us. I'm, I'm really excited about this uh, and, and, and the unique insight that you have to offer to, to everybody else with, with what's going on in COVID and what in music is missing from our lives, right? Well, we can definitely talk about that. Um, first, I just want to point out, didn't you say at the very beginning, didn't you say it's like Flay on Friday? Did I hear you say that? <laughs> yeah, casual Flay on Friday for Adam versus <laughs> Here's the thing. I had to represent my orchestral, my, my symphonic colleagues, and so I have Concert Black on top. But knowing that no one was going to see my bottom half, I definitely wore it. Woo! Look at that, man. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. For those of you just listening. <laughs> yeah, when you said Friday, I was like, yo, I'm on it. Like, look at me. 
Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. we're going to be Isn't it even blue? Or yes. is it like- yeah, we've got matching blue. We're I got the flannel top and your pajama <laughs> bottoms. That's awesome. Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, the, the, yeah. I, before, before we say anything about the music industry, uh, we do have to play the world's small, smallest violin uh, for, for, for a few seconds for the uh, pants industry, which is another tragic casualty of COVID and everybody working from home and being dressed up from the waist up only. <laughs> I just, I don't know anybody who wears pants anymore. What's the point, honestly? <laughs> I went, Adam, I went to go check. Okay, we're two minutes into this and I'm already like giving you this, this side of me. I went to check my mail yesterday, looked down and realized I did not have pants on. This is a real thing that happens to real Americans, Adam. It's a problem. Uh, now, is it that nice in Kansas City? Yeah, well, well, yeah, we've had a weird, like, warm stretch. Yeah, it's been strange. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's really a problem. So pants and symphony orchestras, right? This is who's struggling. Um, so, <laughs> so I have been talking about this for weeks. And, really, I'm, I guess I'm kind of more open to, like, your questions about it and, and other pe- what other people want to know about it because I just see it firsthand and it's it's so much a part of my life that I don't really I don't really think about it so much anymore but to other people it's like really a shock to hear what's going on so like should I just give you kind of a, a, a little snapshot of what's happening as a symphony well I mean we have we have a little time it's not we don't have to rush to that and and I want people I want to first underscore something you're, you're saying here is that uh, in this period where people are kind of pushed into isolation it, it's very easy to lose perspective and think that you're getting a fair perspective from whatever media that you're consuming. And there isn't a single source, even if Adam versus the man was the best show in the world that would give you that effect. And so uh, I'm hoping that, you know, people take this as a reminder, not just to check in with your neighbors, to, to really think and meditate on what other people are experiencing and zooming out, out of empathy for your fellow human beings. But uh, Allison, in order for people to really appreciate your perspective, uh, could, could you at least quickly give us a bit of personal background on, on, on how you got into become, how you became a symphony musician and um, and and your your uh, your 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 personal health status? Yeah, well, okay, so those are kind of two separate things. Um, as far yeah. as being a symphony musician, um, you know, I've been playing. I, I'm in my early 30s. I started when I was seven, so I mean, I've been playing for two and a half decades. Um, went through all the traditional um, schooling and training to become, you know, a professional classical musician, went to conservatory. Um, Funny enough, I I attended Oberlin Conservatory in Ohio, which was a great education, great, great education that I'm still paying for. Um, But I was, was, while there, I was actually head of the uh, president of the Oberlin College Republicans and Libertarians, and we had like a whole six people. So that was really Um, (laughs) good. So that, that, you know, my liberty stance kind of goes all the way back to college where I went to this really progressive school. And, you know, I just I knew that something was off. I just was like, what I'm hearing around me doesn't make sense. So I kind of have been a liberty person ever since then, even though I, I guess in that time I was really more of a neocon. Isn't it funny how they put together the Republicans and the libertarians just as like, OK, you guys aren't progressive. So we're just going to lump you together into like the other political club, which is so unfair. Uh, well, I, I had a similar experience in college, and, and there are two factors behind this that, that kind of – I want to excuse this as, like, yes, it's it's okay for Republicans and, and Libertarians to kind of band together in a college environment where 
two criteria are met. One, the Republicans are honest and actually to some degree believe in small government, in which case they'd be better off just being libertarians anyway, and libertarians can go and use this as a recruiting tool to say, hey, Republicans, if you, if you mean what you say, you know, you, you're really a libertarian. Uh, but also where they, if they're all genuinely small government, then they are the only alternative to the majority. And I, I actually wrote for a conservative slash libertarian paper in college, the Claremont Independent, but I, I did the comedy page on Okay, so, yeah. so, so similar similar background, right? They were like, well, you're not a leftist, and so you're going to go over here. But anyway, so that that was that was. Yeah, pretty much I, I was never I was never a neocon. Don't put that on me. No, 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 no. But but you were not for, like not left, oh, yeah. right? Which is like a yeah. whole yeah. So so anyway, so that was that was my kind of liberty. Uh, one of my formative experiences um, it, to becoming a libertarian, becoming an independent. You know, however you want to look at it. Um, and Free anyway, so what's that? Free thinker, first and foremost. Yes, correct. That's actually how I define myself. Yes. Agreed. Um, so, so I went on with, you know, most of my twenties, I was a freelancer. So like as a, as a, a classical performer, you have kind of what I view as two options. You can either say like, so I'm a violinist and a violist. Um, and I also play some piano on the side, although I'm not quite as proficient with that. Um, but I do consider it, you know, my third instrument. So as a classical musician who's been through conservatory, you can either go the uh, symphony orchestra route and you can spend all of your time taking these auditions and saying, okay, I just really want a symphony job. And that's going to pay you, I mean, depending on the symphony you audition for, that's going to pay you a salary with benefits. And that, that's a really cushy thing. But obviously it's super competitive. So you can go that route. You can spend all that time and money, you know, flying to these places and taking auditions and doing this. And I just was like, no, I don't think that's for me. I need something that's going to be a little more, um, I need. I needed to diversify. I mean, I found this really early on in my career that I wasn't going to be satisfied just doing one thing. So instead, I opted for kind of the B level of symphony playing. And this is something that uh, I share with a lot of my friends, like in the area and nationally. And that is where you can be a, a substitute for a symphony orchestra. So you are getting the symphony experience, but maybe you're playing for more than one orchestra. And maybe you're not playing every concert. So to be a sub, you're maybe maybe sitting in the back, maybe you're playing the concerts that, you know, the the, the, the concert master or whoever doesn't want to do. So I took that route because, A, I didn't want to spend all the time on auditions, and B, I just wanted to get out there and work but not commit myself to one thing. So that kind of started this this career of diversification, which now, as it turns out, I'm really glad I have because now I'm in a position where I can turn down symphony gigs that are requiring, requiring this ridiculous virus protocol. So that's where I am right now. And your personal health background is relevant to this? Health background is relevant to this simply because when people hear what I am saying, which is my, my message these days is let us play. That's our message. Don't hold us down. Let us play. If someone in the orchestra does not want to play, they are not going to be forced to do so. If someone in the audience does not want to go and see a symphony concert, they are not forced to do so. But what you're doing is you're preventing me from a performing opportunity and from a career and my livelihood for the sake of all these other people. So the reason I bring up my health in this kind of conversation is that they go, well, you're not thinking about, you're, you're being selfish. And, you're, you know, I mean, you've heard it, right? You're thinking about, you're not thinking about the old think people. Of the think of the think of the grandmas. You're murdering. What about the grandmas, right? And, and so I turn to them and I say, I'm high risk. I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm high risk. So at 16 years old, I was diagnosed with vasculitis, which is a rare autoimmune disorder. 
I've been on medication after medication after medication. I'm now in remission since 2013. So I'm so, so, so happy that I am, as far as vasculitis goes, a relatively healthy patient. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm in a pretty good position, but I'm still severely immunocompromised. I mean, I take pills that depress my immune system every single day. So these people who are looking at me and going, well, you don't care. You're not thinking about it. I'm like, I am that person. I am that person, and I'm still wanting to do what I want to do, and I don't like to be held down and told what I'm not allowed to do because of other people's feelings or, or fears. So, so one of the things that I, I, I wanted to get from this interview with you and I want our, our audience to get as, as a takeaway is that you, by by these two unique combination of circumstances, your, your health and your work, have had to analyze. I, for me, I can say, I mean, I'm middle-aged, so I like to pretend that I'm young. Uh, I'm relatively young, I'm healthy, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the, the negligible risk category with COVID, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I, I don't have any, I mean, I have allergies, like hay fever, and, you know, uh, you know that, that's about it. You know, like, I don't have any, I'm, I'm otherwise, you know, totally healthy. So uh, I, it, it's kind of easy for me, and I think a lot of people in our audience, to take that position and go, all right, well, it's not a threat to me, I'm just going to manage the social situation, and I'm going to be polite. And I, just to reiterate for everybody, um, my personal policy is to, to never wear a mask proactively, but to always respect anybody's request if I'm going to be around them and I'm going to choose to be around them. So if I see someone wearing a mask, I'm not going to run up and start, you know, start talking next to them like it's normal. No, because there's a new standard of distancing. If someone's wearing a mask, they're saying, I want to adhere to the standard. And, you know, it would be like, you know, breathing on somebody or being in an uncomfortably close talk or getting spittle on someone, you know, was before all this. And as, as, as a bit of a German from myself, I'm, I'm actually glad that there's this slightly heightened awareness. But with, with that being said, have you uh, – what is your take on the the real threat of this virus versus what we're being told? Okay, so first of all, we have so much in common, and it's not just the blue plaid pants. Um, I also take the same stance of I am not going to be told when to wear a mask. However, personal respect is such a big thing with me. So one way that I can put that into practice um, is I would say personal respect and also how that sort of combines with voluntary efforts. So one way that I put that into very practical um, uh into practicality is that aside from the symphonic playing and the the accompanying on the piano and the other things I do, one of my other jobs um, is that I teach private lessons in my home. So when the pandemic started, I had all of these parents of students. They're mostly high school age, just for context. A couple adult students. I had all these parents, and they're saying, "Hey, what are what what are you doing about the virus? Do you want us to wear a mask? Do we suspend lessons? What are we supposed to do?" Well, we're kind of going into the summer, and that's that's a big source of my income in the summertime, and so I didn't want to just not teach lessons. But there was a very practical. Um, I had to really think about how was I going to do this. So what I decided to do was I said, "Look, my policy is that I do not wear a mask in my home." I was very clear about that. I don't wear a mask in my home. It's my house for Pete's sake, okay? But if anybody else would like to wear a mask, you are perfectly welcome to. If you need to skip a lesson, you are perfectly welcome to. If you would like me to wear a mask, for example, if we have a recital or if we meet somewhere that is not my home, I respect that and we will have a discussion. So in that way, I'm kind of able to show people a very 
a very um, livable way to say that I'm against these mandates, but I'm not going to just walk around, like you said, you're not going to walk around just coughing all over people. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're about. That's not what we're about at all, especially someone who's immunocompromised. So the other thing I'll say to that is from that perspective, um, I wrote an essay, oh my gosh, it was way back in April, and I wrote this essay that that was basically like, you know all these things y'all are doing now to, to that you think are stopping the spread of the virus and all this stuff? Immunocompromised patients do that every day. That is my life. You're telling me to wash my hands? We've been told that since we were four years old. But immunocompromised, yeah, like really? But immunocompromised patients are doing that constantly. Um, I... When I get on a plane, I wear a mask. I was wearing masks on planes before it was cool. Like, <laughs> no government or no state or no private business is going to tell me what to do without me going, is that actually a good idea? And most of the time, they were like, well, this is the thing that we were doing. And I'm like, great, that's great. I've been doing it for 15 years. Go now, now, of all these things that you, you have to do anyway as being um, immunocompromised, I assume that you've also had a, a curfew your entire life, like the city of New York City, because uh, viruses are especially brutal after 10 p.m. in the city, as we know from science, right? Now, yeah. I mean, just, just – just, Really, and, and and just to remind people, I'm not I'm not making this shit up. This is New York City. This week went to 10 p.m. curfews, 10 p.m. curfews, and and what's the effect of this? It's just like Walmart. Oh, we're gonna send everybody through one door instead of all the doors. Really, you're gonna have people closer together. You're gonna have people close together in time. You're gonna have a lot of people gonna rush to get done something that has to be done at 10 o'clock, and they're gonna now they're not. They're, I mean, it's, it, it is so counter science and so you know Allison, i would ask then give, given your sort of personal experiences as living this 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 heightened germophobic awareness what are the most offensive counterproductive things you've seen government mandate or, or ask for um offensive counterproductive okay the first thing that comes to mind and i don't know why it comes to mind but the first thing is when people started to go i would have to go up to my friends and say um, you know, we'd be in public or like somewhere where we're required to wear masks. And so I do. I'm not walking around, you know, like lassoing my mask, like, look at me not wearing it. Like, no, if I'm if I'm in a place where I need to wear it, that's what I'm going to do for the respect of the people around me. But so I'll meet a friend out somewhere, like at a restaurant or whatever, and they'll come up to me and they'll go, hi, it's so good. to," And then they'll go, wait, wait, are we hugging? Can we hug? Can we? I'm like, <laughs> can we hug? That's like the foundation of of being a human is wanting to have physical, personal contact with the people around you. And it's just, and so actually this just occurred to me too. I, gosh, I'm so fired up about this. But a couple other examples. One is my husband works at a hospital. He's a pharmacy technician at like the big hospital system here in town where we're having overflow from five different states. I mean, we're in Kansas City right on the border. So Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Arkansas. I mean, there's people coming from everywhere. And so he comes home every night, and he, at first, during the pandemic, was very, very careful to be like, I'm going to go change my clothes. I'm going to go change my clothes. I'm going to scrub up to the elbows. Like, he was doing all the things. He was taking all of the precautions, which we kind of do anyway with me being immunocompromised and being married to somebody who works in a hospital. This is common sense stuff for us, and this is how we've always operated. But especially now, when the virus hit, we didn't know what was going on, so that's the thing that we did. People would ask me. They would go so with your husband working at this big hospital system where there's a lot of COVID patients, like, are you guys, are you guys isolating from each other? And the first time they asked me that, I laughed out loud. I laughed in their face. I was like, 
and then I stopped and I was like, wait, 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 are you serious? And the girl who was asking me this, she goes, yeah, so I know this couple and like, the, the husband is living in the northwest corner of the house, and the wife is living in the southeast corner of the house. I just was like, I'm going to stop you right there. I'm married to this person. I'm not isolating from my own husband. That's ridiculous. This so that, is what happens when you don't pay attention in biology 101 or it's high school high school basic introduction to science. Like, oh, mm. I know, I know. So that was that was that was a huge thing. I was just like, how are people taking this stuff seriously? And it, it was it was a little bit of libertarianism, but it was mainly me being like, I have dealt with being a germaphobe and being immunocompromised for so long that this stuff I have to think about this stuff every day. But here we have healthy people walking around on the streets going, Well, I'm not gonna do that because I don't want to infect the person next to me and I'm like, coming right from the source, don't worry about it. I don't care. That's not that big of a deal, you know? So I'm just trying to, like, I'm trying to set an example for two different demographics. One is for immunocompromised patients who are scared to death. I mean, they really, really are. Um, there's there's work that I do with with a nonprofit organization for vasculitis, and one of the things I try to do is tell people that, look, you are already doing all the things you're supposed to be doing, so please don't let the fear get to you, and please don't let the media get to you with its lies and its corruption about all these things they're telling you that you do not have to believe or you do not have to do just because you read it on MSNBC for crying out loud. So one is the immunocompromised demographic, but the other one is the musicians. And they are just, a lot of musicians are like sheep. A lot of them fall on the progressive side of things, but especially in an orchestra. You're ruining the mythology of American musicians as being rebellious spirits, Allison. How dare you? I know, I know. And the thing is, we're not rock musicians, right? We're symphonic musicians. And so, I know, sorry to break down. Look, you already know we were glad. Like, come on, what else is there to find out about us? Like, but, but you know, a lot of my music, and I, I feel like I need to backtrack a little bit. Sheep is a strong word. However, if you look at a symphony orchestra, there are 100 people sitting in chairs playing music that they did not choose that is um, – led by someone that they did not vote into the position of conductor and they their job is to follow that person's instructions that person's musical uh decisions so if you're like a virtuoso that's one thing but if you're an orchestral musician your job is to show up and do what you're told that's that's how it is in the music world at least in my music world so these people are a little I think, and this is a broad generalization, but I think that orchestra musicians are a little more apt to just kind of say, yeah, well, this is what we're being told to do. I mean, if they're putting our chairs six feet apart, I'm not going to question it. I'm sure as hell questioning it, Adam. It's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. It's a, it's a, it's so, okay, so now. Well, we- I, I, this is actually a fun little experience for me because I don't think anybody has ever heard through Adam versus the man that I have a, a Minor orchestral background myself. Uh, Are you kidding me? Trumpet and saxophone in my yeah. uh, middle school and elementary years, and then uh, uh, in choir in college, uh, a little piano and and vocals. And I did uh, Carmina Burana in in college. Yeah. It was the height of my musical experience. So I, I, but I remember when I was a middle schooler playing trumpet and saxophone. Uh, we spat on each other a lot. I'm okay with chairs. <laughs> yeah, no, brass instruments are disgusting. As a violinist, let me tell you, it's disgusting. There's a reason that we look down on brass instruments, because y'all are gross. That's why. But we're told not to 
definitely. I mean, we're, first of all, very cool. I did not know that about you. That's great. I, I always love it when, like, former musicians are like, I dabbled in the trumpet at one point. I don't anymore. <laughs> I did. Well, now, now all I do is pretend to know that I play know how to play the guitar at the campfire. And yeah. That's enough. <laughs> That's, that's fine. That gets you all the babies you'll ever need. That's fine. You just have to like hold a guitar, and the women just like run to you. So it's fine. Um, but like, so trumpet playing and brass playing in in general, and then like woodwind playing and singing in particular. We are constantly told how dangerous these things are. So you mean um, now? Well, do you mean historically as an immunocompromised, or now as a musician no, under COVID? No, now because of the virus. Now because okay. of the virus, we. It has not stopped. Like, every time somebody says, oh, singing in a choir, and somebody goes, oh, but I hear that's dangerous. Or, like, oh, I, I play I play the flute. Oh, really? I hear that's dangerous. It's just like, okay. where? Okay, okay, hold on, hold on. Before you go any further on that, I want to ask a clarifying question that, or a sort of background question I think is important because, you know, the, the governments of the world, the mainstream media are presenting COVID, obviously as this exaggerated threat saying that, well, like in the United States now, the big headlines are it's projected to kill 400,000 as if projected. the 200,000 projections were correct originally or the, or the 2 million. It was 2 million. Remember, it was 2 million Americans at one point they were projecting. And, and I want to say even even if this, like this is, I don't, I don't pretend to be an expert uh, in, in picking all of this data apart, but I know that it's exaggerated and I, and I look at, uh, I think, well, actually, my, my friend uh, Mercedes, our, our, our part of our core team, I think gave me the best kind of way of thinking about this, that it's, it's like a, a, new, uh, a, a, new, a new virus or a new category of viruses in the, the global human petri dish where you might say now there's the cold viruses, there's the flu viruses, and there's the COVID viruses or the COVID-19 family of viruses. And because they're new, they're going to kill people as they get out into the herd uh, before we get to that, not necessarily herd immunity, but like stasis level, like we're at with with the flu, and then they're just going to kill forty thousand people every year and be just the same as the flu or less once we get to that point, or with the vaccine or over it. Um, and so I, I might say, like the way the media is presenting this is that it's some somewhere on the scale of ten to twenty times more of a threat than the the flu as a whole, and. You know, I, I, my take is it might be two or three times more deadly, but probably about the same or less. Uh, do, do you just in that bigger scale of what's the threat in those kinds of terms? What, what, what's your take? Well, you must not be listening to the science, Adam. I mean, don't you don't you know anything about science? Like, hey, I, I, it's just like the Bible. I'm listening to all the science, even the parts that contradict the other parts. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't. You know, okay. So this is where I'm not really. Um, qualified to speak. I'm not, a, you know, my take on it is this. As an immunocompromised person, I don't care what the science says. This is just another threat to my immune system. That's how I feel about this. I think that's the best way to sum it up. I mean, well, how I, much? How much? I, compared to the flu, can you say, because well, you must take the, you must take flu seat. I mean, t- tell me, in, uh, on, a, on a regular year, are you paying attention to flu vaccines and are strains bad and taking, no, you don't care? No, so here, no, 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 it's all about care. Like, here's the thing. So here's another perspective for you. Um, every year, my rheumatologist says, look, I know you hate getting vaccines, <laughs> it, which is a liberty thing, but um, I know you hate getting vaccines. It's a health thing. <laughs> well, yeah. Careful about what you put in your body, right? Yeah, I mean, crazy talk, right? So, but here's the thing is flu vaccines, I know they change a little bit every year, but the flu vaccine as a general, you know, 
idea has been around for long enough that it's not that scary to me. Like, they've had some time to work on it. So, yes, I get the flu shot. I do. Okay. Because I don't want to get the flu as somebody who's immunocompromised. Now, when the coronavirus... Yeah, it's only 10% effective like this last season. I still get the flu. <laughs> I still get the flu. But I get the shot because, like, okay, why not? Sure, maybe if it helps. So, I, I've admittedly, I've been a little blase about something like the flu shot. This coronavirus vaccine I will not be getting. And the reason is because it's so new. I don't, I don't trust it. I mean, newsflash, I don't trust anything about the coronavirus, you know, phenomenon. Let the politicians take it first and see how many of them die before we let anybody yeah. else touch it. Well, and, and it's nice because, I, yeah, exactly. Like, it's going to come down to us peasants, you know, quickly. But, um, but if it's a live vaccine, we can't get the shot anyway. Because what it can do is it can trigger an immune response that you're not prepared for. So when there's something, you know, there's this new vaccine or there's this different flu vaccine, blah, 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 blah. So I can't get that if it's going to be a live strain of something. I can't get it anyway. So if it gets to the point where, like, like one of my other jobs is that I uh, play piano for a high school choir. So that's like my, I guess you could call my day job. It's about a 20 hours a week job. And to be in this school building, we have to wear masks start to finish, et cetera, et cetera. I know that they're going to push for everybody to get the vaccine. They will. Of course they will. But I do have a doctor's note that's like, hey, if this turns out to be, I don't know, I don't know how vaccines work enough to tell you if it's going to be a live vaccine or not. I don't know. But I, I have the paperwork that says that it's actually a risk for me to get the vaccine itself. So I could, in theory, take that to authority and say, hey, I, you know, hey, I got a free pass. Um, because it's not good. It's actually worse for me to take the vaccine than it is to just yeah. have no, and I, I want to point this out as sort of a note of caution because I'm, I'm or of reassurance rather, I think, for our, our audience who, you know, I think shares a lot of our, our skepticism. Uh, that, you know, I, I, one of my concerns, uh, you know, I took a test, I took a COVID test, but it was a ma- it was, it was mailed to me. It was a prick test with instant results. You know, not literally instant, but you know, like 15 minutes you wait, you make sure that the test strip shows, uh, you know. I did do that for the orchestra gig, so I got one of those too. Yeah, well, you can't get those anymore. Like from what I understand, it's not it's it's not the publicly available the kind that, that now you have to mail in or you drive through and get your nose swabbed, things like that. And you know, I'm I'm concerned if I take the test that it's going to be on the record if I test positive or negative, and that's not going to be used against me medically. I was like, oh, well, you got it, so you now you have to have the vaccine before you can come into our store. But, you know, what, what I want to point out here is that, you know, uh, Allison found it relatively easy to get a doctor's note to say, no, I can't take this, you know. It's not, they're not, like, and, and I, like, we, we, we cover the story, and this is, you know, we, we got to be the last question. We have another guest waiting, Allison, but Ticketmaster. <laughs> you know, going back to the bigger impacts on the music industry, Ticketmaster is saying that at some point you might not be able to buy tickets. Now, you know, if you, if you don't have the if you don't have the, the vaccine paperwork documentation approved that you've had, now a lot of people might go, Adam, you're a libertarian private property. You know, why the heck do we have this conglomeration of ticket sales under a single corporate umbrella? That's not a product of the market. That's corporatism. That's government. By definition of Mussolini, that's fascism. So in this sense, Ticketmaster could be seen as serving as an agency of enforcement of government, and it is a very scary possibility that you might not be allowed to go to certain venues or concerts or events or what have you if you don't have the vaccine. 
So, Allison, your, your thoughts on that? And, and just to wrap it up, you know, bigger impacts on the music industry or anything else you think our audience needs to know about that? Um, okay, so my thoughts on that are, fortunately, you don't get symphony orchestra tickets through Concertmaster. So that's more – or uh, uh, Ticketmaster. There we go. Yeah. That's more like for, you know, rock – like, I don't know, Radiohead or whoever comes to town. I, Radiohead, why do <laughs> Are they even still recording? I don't know. It's for people who don't have a problem paying a convenience fee. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't buy my tickets that way anyway. But, um, uh, I don't know. I, I make it sound like I know what I'm talking about. I haven't, I, I haven't bought no. a single ticket through Ticketmaster no. except for one time in college. Yeah, here's, here's what else. Oh, hey, Barry. Viola in the background for that comment that popped up. <laughs> yeah, for those of you listening, don't be a status on uh, YouTube comments. Is that a cello in the background, or is she just happy to see it? Yeah, it's a viola. It's a viola. Um, so, nice but it's a real viola. <laughs> Gross, by the way. Um, anyways, so the last thoughts is this. If you are a fan of music and you want to see it continue, um, go to all of the concerts that you can. Um stand up and and speak out against these things that are like, well, you can only go to this concert if you have a mask or if you have one thing that, okay, my brain's going like six different places. One thing that's really cool that's been happening is that musicians everywhere are saying, well, if I can't do this or if I can't do this and and, and these this virus protocol is wrecking our, our orchestra concerts, I don't want to play in a baseball stadium with 20 mile an hour winds just to have the concert be called off because it's physically impossible to play in this right. condition because the symphony arts hall is closed down. I mean, it's gotten to that level. It really has. So support music any way you can. Get online, support the musicians who are trying to pivot and do something alternative to still give music to people. But when these things are lifted, because they have to be, right? Right? Like, surely we won't be wearing masks in concert halls forever, right? So Mm -hmm. when these things are lifted, I'm saying when, not if. I'm going to say when. Go to the concerts. Go to the concerts. Show the musicians that you are happy to be there. Show them that, that you support them. Show your enthusiasm. We will appreciate it so much. And, hey, if you know a musician and you know that they're struggling during this time, just be like, hey, man, I'm sorry for what you have to put up with. Um, how can I help? You know, or or whatever. Just do, just show love to your symphony musicians because we are frustrated right now. Well, the, the libertarian musicians are. So. Yeah, it's, uh, you got to make sure that people know there's a huge parallel here with independent media and the, the music that we put in our brains and, and the psychological impact of that and how we have to be conscientious consumers of music the yeah. same way as all other information and of the news and be you know willing as, as consumers to vote with our dollars to, to make the world a better place and, and not let music be so dominant. I mean, you've heard me rant about this. Not so much in the sphere of, of concert music where uh, you know, the, the weight of the classics is a little heavier, but certainly in, in, the, in the realm of modern music, of uh, messaging that's so perverted by intellectual property in the music industry to give us a, a message of, of going back to sleep and consumerism and, and whatever it takes. And, and, Allison, thank you for sharing this. It's a beautiful, positive message, and I, I love the, the attitude that you've taken on with this. Is there anything else that you want to share for how people can connect with you? Um, gosh, I'm sure there's a lot more I could say, but you want, uh, you want to sign up for music classes in the Kansas City where at? Yeah, come take lessons with me, man. That's that's what I want to say. If you're in Kansas City, seriously though, if you're in Kansas City, get in touch with me. I, I'm not going to, you know, force my viola lessons on you, but like I can show you where to go to get to, to go see concerts where these restrictions will not be in place. I can hook you up with actual libertarian musicians who are 
in kind of in this circle fighting against this, um, we have a Liberty Orchestra we're trying to get started, which is going to be a really big thing. So, um, and then my last word is just Adam, can I fangirl for 10 seconds? <laughs> okay. Can you just be, to our next guest. <laughs> can you just be like, Rachel Sampson, you're the best. Just say Rachel it. Sampson, you're the best. That's all I needed. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me on today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Allison. Appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, Allison Ross. All right. Moving on. And, and uh, thank you for waiting. Our next guest, Hannah Cox, uh, wrote the article, Oregon Takes the Lead on Ending the War on Drugs for the Foundation for Economic Education. That's B.org. And uh, this is, you know, we've been we've been looking at this for a long time. Hannah, like this, so, you know, I'm, I'm not just uh, an enthusiastic cannabis consumer for a lot of my own reasons, but as an enthusiastic libertarian looking at the bigger picture of, of justice, I'm so excited at what we're seeing. Uh, and and I, I, you know, as, as someone who's a champion, uh, I think of, of, of conscientious drug use and, and, and getting past the paradigm of letting authorities tell us what goes in our bodies. I mean, this is, I want to, I, I mean, the bigger picture here, I want to go like, is this really as much of a turning point? I, my analysis of this, this election and, and, and your article helped me clarify this was that we, we saw incremental changes, but we got to a kind of a critical mass. We, we hit a kind of turning point where, for example, even in states where cannabis is illegal, being a dick about it as a cop is going to be kind of difficult, or a prosecutor, because it's legal so many other places. And because Oregon, not even the first, but the first state to decriminalize all drugs for personal use, major turning point makes it really hard to demonize it everywhere else with this propaganda pro-drug war attitude when they've embraced such a, a, a policy that is based on such a more humane paradigm. Um, and, and I hope I'm not exaggerating too much. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Uh, I, I, please please give, give us a bit of a personal introduction. Yeah, and, and how did you get into this subject? Yeah, well, I agree with everything you said. There was so much to celebrate from the election a couple of weeks ago, especially when it comes to the war on drugs and every single uh, opportunity that voters were given to vote against it. They did so. So Oregon was the biggest achievement, I think. But we saw other states um, legalize marijuana and take action similar to that, too. So as a whole, I think you're right. We are hitting a um, a critical mass where society recognizes unilaterally that the drug wa- the drug war has failed. It's failed yep. um, in multiple ways. It's had very devastating effects on our communities and in our society, and they're ready to change it. I think you know the the legislatures have been really slow to act, but the culture has been there for a minute. So that was thrilling to see. Um, I have been following the drug war for some time. My my primary work is in criminal justice reform. I run a group that works against the death penalty predominantly. Um, but that does also do other criminal justice as well. And so this has just been so exciting to witness and see. I think um, I think that there's a lot of tie-ins to the popularity of criminal justice reform and to ending the war on drugs. I think that that's also a, yes. an issue that we saw do quite well during the election. So I'm, I'm thrilled about it. I think um, Oregon will likely have great success based on the other models of countries we've seen who have implemented these um, changes. And it, it's important to note because I've seen a lot of people 
um, claiming that they legalized all drugs. They did not legalize all drugs. They decriminalized right. all drugs, which is a very different approach. And and if you dig into the actual um, ballot amendment, they actually moved a lot of funding around um, specifically from their cannabis tax to redirect people towards treatment options when they are struggling with addiction. So it's not just removing um, an approach. It's actually implementing one that makes a lot more sense, more of a public health approach, um, really looking at this as a a need for treatment versus criminalization. So I'm, I'm thrilled and, and I think they'll be successful. And I think if they are successful, there's reason to hope other states will follow in their pathway. Absolutely. It's a great summary. But I, I want to get a little more personal background on you. Like, how did you get into this this realm of activism first? And, and I don't know if you, I, if you if you want to get into this, I, I don't know how much you want to keep this about, you know, the, the, the upper level policy stuff and the optimism. But I think that our audience would appreciate, you know, your personal background in relation to drugs. Whereas I can say, you know, it, it, drugs are just, it's, it's a part of the human existence that we use substances to, to alter our consciousness, to enhance our lives one way or another, and to recognize that caffeine is a drug, alcohol is a drug, nicotine is a drug, and, and to have that same objective perspective is very important, where I can say, well, because when I was in college, alcohol was legal and kind of encouraged, I was the, I was not... I was an enthusiastic drinker, and then that you know, I was in the Marines. I was allowed to smoke cigarettes, but not cannabis, so I smoked cigarettes, you know. And uh, I've I've been, you know, I've had great positive experiences through psychedelics, and I'm I'm looking forward to getting to the legalization of the point where we can realize the medical and PTSD treatment benefits for the veterans community, especially MDMA and psilocybin. Yes. Just oh. The, the, the unrealized potential, even even with cannabis, and I'm 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 a, I'm a regular cannabis consumer now. I was gonna say like you, both of our guests today seem to have like dressed to match my colors. I feel bad now. I'm in blue, normally black and white, but I matched matched our last guest's pajamas. And your studio, it's like it's almost a great. It's like kind of monochrome. My, my studio box. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm a, I, you know I can say now like I'm I'm a, a regular cannabis consumer because uh, you know both. At, at a low continuous level is a sort of, I think, a positive adjustment is sort of, you know, lowering of anxiety and, and, and opening of the mind. But if I don't have it, I'm, it's not a big deal. And, you know, occasionally recreationally to, uh, to, to enjoy a celebratory interview here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I was sort of similar to you in the fact that I was, you know, around lots of substances in college. And then my first career actually was in the music industry. So I was around drugs all the time. It was very common um, for people to use drugs, offer drugs to be, you know, even in a working kind of setting, if you were at like a festival or something like people were doing drugs. And, and I think what really started to strike me was how, um, easy it was and, and commonplace it was for people in my socioeconomic circle to do that um, and the unlikelihood that we would ever really be apprehended or, or in any way um, come up against the justice system <laughs> throughout that process. And then when I started seeing the, the impacts of the war on drugs on other communities and on other people and, and the stark disparity and, and treatment there, I became really, really convicted about it. It deeply bothered me. Um, and then the next kind of step for me was I started doing some volunteer lobbying for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I was super um, bothered by our our movement, the libertarian movement, free market movements, sort of lack to always address appropriate solutions for things like mental health. You know, we come in and we mm -hmm. oppose government health care for good 
reason. But then I don't often see people come um, and follow that up with real approaches that could address serious issues in society. And so I was trying to do some work to that end. And um, it was through that that I really started working around the criminal justice system because there's just so much overlap between mental health populations and the criminal justice system. Um, and, and as you mentioned, among veterans with mental health issues in the criminal justice system, I don't think people realize how frequently veterans end up in jail and in our prisons um, because they don't get the help that they need. And, and when you talk about the possibilities of testing some of these substances to see if there are better uses for them that could really treat some of these disorders that we've not been able to sufficiently address in society yet. I, I think you're absolutely right. You're, being, you're, you're, you're phrased that in a way that's way too kind to the pharmaceutical industry because <laughs> you know that a better narrative would be legitimate, organic, effective, cost-effective treatments are yeah. deliberately suppressed in the name of the war on drugs in order for pharmaceutical companies to be able to make more money treating symptoms rather than addressing root causes. That's exactly right. You're not one bit off the mark. Um, and in fact, I actually saw this morning that there's a new study out showing that um, LSD could appropriately treat PTSD, and they've seen some really great developments with that. We have seen some uh, some small studies around Molly or MDMA, um, and those have also been encouraging. But you're you're completely correct that there's this crony pact going on between the pharmaceutical companies and the government, where the government comes in and puts in all of these laws and regulations to basically suppress competitors and continue to hand pharmaceutical companies the market, um, and they push products that hurt people and that ultimately don't tend to really address underlying causes or, or fully treat people, but instead get them hooked up on on medicines that have side effects and that are costly and that don't ever go away. Um, so I think I think that's an important thing to highlight. So policy initiatives. I don't, I mean, maybe this is jumping ahead, but this is kind of getting to answer the question: like, what are the effects of, of this incremental policy shift that we're experiencing? Literally, as we speak, we're in Arizona. We had Prop 207 that, you know, I got to say, incremental. It barely took us from medical to recreational, but, uh, and I had a card. I let it expire, and I'm glad that I did now, right? It, it technically hasn't taken effect yet, but uh, I don't stress out about, oh, is, is there weed in my briefcase while I'm driving around now? It's just don't have that area of stress at all in my life. And we had, uh, I think it was the last election cycle, the first hole in the dam with psychedelics of Denver County decriminalizing psilocybin and then Oakland, California decriminalizing uh, in, in a similar way. But now we see psilocybin mushrooms at a, at a wider level, not just all the state of Oregon, but D.C. voting separately for that as well, as well as a few other local jurisdictions in this last cycle. What What's the impact of that? I want to I give you one of the Please, please take your time answers. I'm big. This is like a big, broad question. Like I said about cannabis, it's not that for someone like me who is probably going to smoke it anyway, it's easier and I'm a little less stressed and I have a little less legal liability. By the way, I got to point out something you said about the uh, the racial aspect of this, to not dance around it at all. Uh, one of my favorite stand-ups, John Mulaney, said, you know, said something in, in one of his last special, like, and now look how legal it is, and people go woo, and he goes, "Oh, don't woo if you were if you're white. It was always legal for us. I did not do hard time for smoking joint a joint at a rusted root concert, you know. And you know, there's there is a real like this is when you take an honest look at the drug war, it really is unavoidable to come to the the recognition 
that this is a way that the powerful people take advantage of unpowerful people. And there's a huge racial component to this, as black America and other, and, and other disadvantaged minorities are hugely taken advantage of by the drug war. Because it's like, it's the excuse, and it is it is a way that racism, if, if oh, I smell pot is an excuse to stop you, to search you, to frisk you, to stop and frisk you, to pull you over or to, to turn a vehicle pull over stop into uh, something more than a warning, <clears throat> you know, hey, there's there's going to be a bias in the application of that. But the point I'm, I, I want to get at here to, to, before you run away with all these fun topics is that the, it, it, the, the benefit of, of cannabis legalization in terms of its social impact, because it, cannabis is one very dangerous side effect that we have to acknowledge, you can't smoke pot and not realize that government is totally full of shit. You've been lied to a lot. Yeah. And if you if you let that sink in, it's a very dangerous side effect. Because next thing you know, you might be a maybe one of those anti-government libertarians because you don't like being lied to. How about that? You like right. self ownership. And it's not that that I have easier access or even that the market is developed, but that the kind of statist control freak authoritarian personality types get to smoke it that there's going to be this really fundamental positive shift when cannabis becomes as common and casual as, as alcohol, if not even more so. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great point. People always say cannabis puts you to sleep, but maybe it would wake people up and make them recognize that they've just been lied to about the effects of it, about how dangerous it is, and about the reasons that it has been suppressed all, all along. Um I think it is important to really talk about the racial disparities in the war on drugs because they're not unintentional. The drug war, which was started under the Nixon administration, is it's a statement of fact. You can you can literally look it up. They have statements where these people in the administration. Negroes and anti-war <laughs> activists must yes. be put down. Yes. correctly summarize that. As That's exactly best. what they were saying. And so it was, it was always meant to attack the black community. There's there's no bones about it. And That's what it was for. And yeah, other dissidents, and dissidents and in particular, dissident. and, and was used against Black Panthers, who were both both black and activists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it gave them enemies. permission to break up their meetings, barge into their homes, put them under surveillance, yes. um, demonize them in the media and in the news. So, it, and it's worked quite well, to be honest. If you look at the stats, I mean, I think black people, last I look, are like three times more likely to be arrested and jailed for using drugs, even though white people and yep. black people use drugs at the same rate. We see, I think, black men serve something like 13% longer sentences for drugs for the same offense. Um, we see that black homes and communities are far more likely to be raided with SWAT, SWAT raids or with no-knock raids. It just goes on and on and on. Um, so across the board, we've seen that this has been racially targeted. Um, and yet, you know, what's so surprising to me is that you have one party that's constantly talking about systemic racism, and their <laughs> torchbearer doesn't even want to legalize marijuana. It just makes absolutely yeah. no sense. Yeah. Well, hey, I, I mean, was, was, well, hold on. I, I want you to get, if, if you can, what are your hopes? For the, the positive shift from now that at least a, a much greater level of conscientious drug use is possible. And I, I, I mean, I just even just cannabis. If everybody who would benefit from cannabis was able to try it, whether it's for a mood adjustment, for recreational relaxation, for getting off pharmaceuticals, for pain relief, for topical CBD applications, et cetera, et cetera, 
I mean, just think about, you know, like all the positive things for that. But in terms of the, the paradigm shift, uh, I know this is a little, maybe, maybe a little out of your normal lane, but I think it is for most people to say, hey, how much chiller a place will the world be when everybody who needs it has regular access to cannabis? Yeah, I, I definitely would love to see more people using cannabis than alcohol. I think you'd see less domestic violence. I think you'd see less public um, fights. I think you'd see probably less drinking and driving accidents. There's there's all sorts of effects that you can imagine of how it would actually better society. Um, I think other positives we can hope to see is that as people start to recognize the scheme of the war on drugs and the impact, I think it also opens them up to broader criminal justice reforms and really starting to question how much authority we give government in general. I think you're absolutely right that as people become more informed, you can't really get it and understand the problem of the war on drugs and then not start to take that further and apply it to other aspects of government and other policy issues. So I think that um, that advocacy could really start to make an impact, especially locally. You know, everybody always focuses so much on the federal elections, on the presidency. But really, when we look at the war on drugs and when we look at um, where change can be gained, it is in the states. And that is where we're seeing real progress um, occurring. So I hope that it energizes people. It motivates them. Um, I think for for many, you're right, they've always had access and they haven't really been um, punished or or risked the same um, effects as other communities for using it. But I think um, there are still a lot of really good things that come people's way, even if you're someone who's been comfortably using. You know, if you go to a store in L.A. and look at the kinds of options you have versus where I am in South Carolina, if I wanted to get cannabis, they're very different, right? Like, I don't like to smoke. Yep. I'm a terrible smoker. I, I, It's embarrassing. Like, I start coughing. My eyes water. I hate smoking. <laughs> It's just I'm so homeschooled. I don't know. I can't do it. But I would love an edible. Like if I'm in California, I love to go get an edible. I can break off a little but tiny piece. But if you're in California, if you're at home, right. you hate edibles and would never <laughs> consider doing them. No, never, 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 never in South Carolina. Only when it's legal. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. But but I mean, those are those are real incentives to kind of motivate people, I think, to go and try to push to have it legalized, to have more options. And I think um, when you look at the impacts of the mental health community, they're really exciting. I think so many people struggle in our society with anxiety, with depression. The medicine options that we have for both of those things are just horrific. I myself have a generalized anxiety disorder. I've never taken medicine for it because I'm very concerned about the side effects that you have with these medicines, often which do include suicide um, and suicidal thoughts. And so I think there's a lot of people who have just had to kind of grin and bear it and and muscle Mm -hmm. through with these really serious disorders that impact your life, they impact your productivity, they impact your relationships. Um, And if they can have something like cannabis over the counter and have easy access to it, that could radically change people's lives. Yeah, I, I don't think it's possible. I mean, we can only sort of wax subjective about uh, all these positive impacts, but you can't deny that even just coming as far as we have, and we we are only really, in terms of, you know, how much, all other things being constant, you know, what is an appropriate amount of cannabis for Americans to consume? And I'm not, I'm not being silly, like, oh, everybody, no, but everybody should consider it the way that every American today has a, conscientious position on how much alcohol or, or nicotine or caffeine they consume, it should be the same way and the same uh, conscientiousness and intellectual effort that goes into cannabis. And in, in that sense, uh, we might only be, you know, 10 to 20% of the way there that when, when cannabis is, is just not a big deal anymore, 
that you might see, I don't know, four or five times the amount of consumption. Obviously a very subjective estimate, but uh, already, already just getting it to where it is, especially as I would tell you from the veterans community, and cannabis isn't a cure for PTSD, but it is very effective symptom management that may in itself lead to self-healing or talk therapy facilitation. But what we see possible for psilocybin and MDMA, again, in PTSD as as more on on the scale of a cure, we're talking about alleviating a perversive layer of, of human suffering from, the, the, I want to say really it's the global human experience. We can kind of quantify it and wrap our heads around it a little easier here in the United States, but the, the, in the United States, ground zero for the global drug war. Uh, the, so I, I look at this and I, I'm very optimistic there's the libertarian fantasy. This is, because there are two ways that we can look at this as libertarians optimistically or, 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 or pessimistically, and, and optimistically being uh, this is going to have a pervasive effect. People are going to smoke pot and realize government's full of shit, and we're not going to put up with anything anymore. You know, as, as you get to, you know, as you uh, point out, the, the limitations uh, of government, we're going to become much more aware of these things. Uh, and it, because the government has to concede this ground, it is going to rapidly lead to an unraveling of the entire sweater of the racket, so to speak. But then the pessimistic would be, well, they're doing this just to maintain their racket, and they're going to, you know, cannabis is going to have a sedative effect, and people are going to get stoned and be less likely to protest, and the, and the bigger racket is going to continue. Continue. Do you have a, a perspective on that as to, to the momentum we get coming out of this? Well, again, I don't I don't think the momentum we're seeing is coming from our leaders. It's not coming from the politicians. It's not even really coming from the legislatures. It's coming from the people when they get the chance to vote on it, which isn't always um, as likely of an outcome in some states versus others. You know, California has a lot of ballot amendments. A lot of states tend to um, use those more heavily than some others. And so would people in South Carolina ultimately get the option to vote for it, I think, is a really good question. Um, will their legislature be likely to pass these things? anytime soon. No. Um, and I think all of that comes back to the fact that government's never looking out for you. They're not they're not trying to look out for what's going to actually improve your life or make your your pathway freer or better. They're looking to entrench their own interests and their own power. And so I do have a pessimistic view of it in that sense that I don't think they do things for our benefit. Um, and I don't think that they will be likely mm-hmm. to really come in and do things like we saw in Oregon anytime soon. I just I find that um, you know, I work in state legislatures across this country. I lobby and I meet with lawmakers and and they're just not there on these issues. I just don't see the mm-hmm. appetite even on the left for that. Um, but as much as we can get it before the people, I think the people are going to vote for what's best for them, are going to vote for free market options and, and other um other kind of pathways to address society's problems when they recognize government has been failing to deliver. So um, there's reason for some optimism and encouragement as I think people wake up and Mm -hmm. and I hope that we see more of these um, types of amendments come up and and pass. But I also think, you know, we're in no way at a point in the war on drugs where we're like at a tipping point, we're about to win. I don't think that that's the case. I really think we still have significant obstacles in our way. Okay, well, I hope this still represents an uptick in momentum for those of us winning the war on drugs. But final question here, you know, a great segue there. Looking forward, you mentioned Joe Biden. We covered the story earlier today. 
that they've basically left cannabis legalization at the national level out of the transition plan. And I, maybe yeah, I, even even to politicians, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, this, this is the headline. Thank you, CJ Marijuana Reform omitted from Biden transition plan on racial equity despite campaign pledges. And, and I, you know, we're getting pretty close to the next tipping point of federal descheduling of, of cannabis, at least, as, as a single step that might happen, at, you know, uh, with, with, with this new Congress between now and 2022. Are, are you optimistic about any of this? What do we, what do we have to look forward to? I, as we, I, I described this transition from the end of the beginning of the end of the war on drugs. We are now at the beginning of the middle of the end of the war on drugs, and I, I think a phase of, of accelerated policy shifts. Uh, so what, what does this say about Biden, and, and what do we have to look forward to over the next four years? Well, I'm not encouraged about Biden or Kamala on this issue. I think they both have pretty bad backgrounds and records when it comes to these policies. You know, um, significantly, Kamala ran as a reform-minded prosecutor in California, but then came in and actually increased the amount of um, drug arrest and incarcerations in the state. The prosecutors have tremendous sway over this issue. They they unilaterally get to pick which laws they're going to enforce, how stringently they're going to enforce them. And we saw her go the opposite direction. Biden has been involved with passing these kinds of bills with building up the criminal justice system that we currently have for decades. And I I haven't seen him as somebody who's typically willing to reverse himself and say he was wrong. He's quite arrogant, actually. He's usually somebody who doubles down on his record and is quite proud of everything he's put into place in government. So I don't feel very hopeful about them, and I don't feel very hopeful about Congress. We don't see Congress being able to pass even even small reforms, much less something as big as descheduling drugs. So um, sorry to be a party pooper, but I, I don't feel super encouraged about that. I think likelier um, is going to take place in the states. I think as much as people can put pressure on their state House and state Senate members to try to push forward issues like this, to try to get um, the option to vote for this on the ballot, to try to join campaigns. You know, and even in Oregon, um, the group that actually backed this ballot amendment didn't come from the legislature. It was a private coalition that raised money um, and pushed the effort to get it on the ballot and was successful. And they're intending to try to replicate that in other states. So I think those are places people should put their focus and resources. And mm. that's the likely path to actually getting more of these types of, of changes. Well, I like that the pessimistic perspective or the, your, your conservative analysis here is still suggesting uh, what, what I would describe as accelerated incremental change. And in, in that, you know, I, 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 in my optimism, I think in the next, uh, I think really in the next four years, before the next presidential election, we are going to see uh, a, a major positive effect from conscientious drug use that is now legally possible and uh, that there is going to be a significant uh, positive impact on that. So I uh, love nothing I, more to be wrong. So I hope, well, I hope well, you're I, right. I, I think we're on the same page because I, I, I'm with you that I'm, I'm just, I, I think as we see what you, what is incremental policy change continuing just with greater certainty and, and, and momentum at this point, uh, it's not going to get us to, my dramatic libertarian fantasy tipping point uh, in the next couple cycles. It, it's going to still take at least four years before we get to see the, the the sort of feedback effect of you legalize it, more people realize government is full of shit, and then we go, now the rest of the drug war done. But that that, that is that is on the horizon. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm glad that, that we get to celebrate this, that we get to live through this and one way or another, 
you're going to get to tell your grandkids, hey, I'm sorry we did that. Remember, remember, remember when drugs were illegal? Remember when we had this ridiculous war on drugs? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad we learned from that, and, and we're in a better world now, one way or another. This is this is one of the great ways that our generation gets to to see see freedom radically increase in our lifetimes. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. So for those of you who don't know, Hannah is a contributor also to Newsmax and the Washington Examiner, as well as the Foundation for Economic Education. Hannah, is how would you like people to be able to connect with you? They can find me on Twitter at HannahCox7, um, on Facebook at HannahDanielleCox7, and I'm on YouTube at HannahCox. So would love to connect with people, and thanks so much for having me, Adam. Hey, my pleasure. Really appreciate your help with the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. And the help in celebrating today. All right. Uh, we're going to go to comments. We're going to go a little overtime today to see how many headlines we can breeze through to do our journalistic responsibility for the week, of course. I was thinking about, oh, we, so yeah, still, we're going to come back. Somewhere in like five to ten minutes. Checking with the audience again. Who's got a, who's got a name for the studio bong today to round out our Friday celebration? But yes, we were thinking of Festerfink looking at this headline today from Fraun.com. Germany's protests against coronavirus restrictions are becoming increasingly radical. Now, they're not using radical in the good sense here. This is a mainstream media demonization of of, uh, of of dissidents, and I, I'm so grateful for the international nature of our producers club. Festerfink, of course, as you might have guessed, coming to us from Germany, uh, gave us gave some important perspective on the first wave of protests that we were covering uh, out of Germany being demonized and and, and heavily misrepresented uh, by the mainstream media. So. The first paragraph here, around 9.30 on a quiet Sunday morning late last month, a crudely made explosive device went off with a small bang and a flash in central Berlin near the building of an association of German scientific institutes. A note found nearby demanded the end to coronavirus restrictions. It sounds like a really pathetic false flag attempt to demonize the protesters, and as we learned from the last protest, it was police infiltrators not organizers or anybody legitimately grassroots who from the protest crowd was throwing rocks and bottles at police. Which is what they get next to here, bottles in the form of Molotov cocktails, of course. Just a few hours earlier, Molotov cocktails had been tossed at the front of the Robert Koch Institute, the German federal agency responsible for controlling the virus. Bigger threat, you know, see, Fester Fink, you see, Fester Fink was with us earlier today. Um, oh, Matt Baxter says, I'm in Rockville, South Carolina, and I approve this message. Celebrating as safely as you can in South Carolina. Uh, this next headline, this is, this is uh, I just want to touch on this. We can do this one quickly. From unlimitedhangout.com, U.S., U.K. intel agencies declare cyber war on independent media. British and American state intelligence agencies are weaponizing truth to quash vaccine hesitancy as both nations prepare for mass inoculations in a recently announced cyber war to be commanded by, and as in quotes, uh, to be commanded by AI-powered arbiters of truth against information sources that challenge official narratives. In this perspective, I, we're going to put the, the, this link in the notes if you want to get into this more, understand this perspective of, like, when you see this much censorship, how much conscious effort is there behind it? And, and, yes, we have reached a scary new level where calling this uh, a, a, a cyber war 
is is not inaccurate. This is not unfair. And and I, I want everybody to at least take a minute to consider this perspective that when you again when you see even just the pattern of censorship that we, that we talk about here in Anna versus demand for us experiencing, let alone everybody else. It, there's an elephant under the blanket in the corner of the room, and 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 this is it—the deliberate effort that is behind this. So, I you know if you, if, if you have the time, if you want to get into this, I really encourage you to check out this article. Uh, it, it, it's it's got a lot of good information perspective on us. Uh, another one that's been making the rounds uh, as a sensationalist headline we got to catch up on for this week from AP.com or APNews.com, Associated Press. Recordings reveal WHO's analysis of pandemic in private. As the coronavirus explodes again, the World Health Organization finds itself both under intense pressure to reform and only now hope that U.S. President-elect Joe Biden will reverse the decision by Washington to leave the health agency with its annual meeting underway this week. WHO has been sharply criticized for not taking a stronger, more vocal role in handling the pandemic. For example, in private internal meetings in the early days of the virus, top scientists described some countries' approach as an unfortunate laboratory in the study to study the virus in a macabre opportunity to see what worked, recordings obtained by the Associated Press show. In public, the UN Health Agency lauded governments for their responses. And, and this, is, this is such bullshit. I mean, just I, I got to expose this. I, got, I, I wouldn't be doing my, my job as a journalist this week in terms of making sure that uh, this, this status propaganda is checked and that, that our, our core audience really knows what's going on here. So, again, just to point this out, it, it, it's this deception where it, it's like if, if, uh, if when I was in college I, I leaked tapes about you know, me complaining about how big my dick was. Like, oh, my God, it's so big. I can't talk about it in public. I really want people to think that I'm average, but it's so big. It's causing all these problems. Uh, Women are satisfied, but, you know, I can't fit in my pants. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's like that is – if you think about what they're doing, I hope that's not just a ridiculous comparison, but really, oh, we're – well, because they want you to think there's there's this secret narrative that we really want governments to do even more than they're doing to crack down on on Corona, to use it as an excuse to bolster their authority. Uh, so, so, so we're going to leak these tapes where we complain about uh, governments not doing enough. Where the the reality is that we're uh, we're just encouraging them and being being positive cheerleaders in public. But in reality, you know, the, the behind the scenes reality is that we're very frightened that governments aren't doing enough. You see, again, you got you you have to the, the propaganda that we are being manipulated by in, in the modern era has to be deconstructed with a, with a perspective on what is their true intent and 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 what are they actually revealing with this? And it, it's it, it's like having to get to not just one layer of propaganda, but the second layer. You know, oh, that's what they're really doing. Just like with the with the censorship about what we're experiencing on YouTube and shadow banning on all the other social media platforms, as libertarians, is is what's being buried by the uh, the, the sort of diversion of uh, I mean again do do I have a smoking gun on this no this is what it looks like but that the censorship of conservatives is used as the smokescreen so that you don't go one layer deeper and go oh what they're really suppressing is the libertarian perspective. That's more important to them. That's of more 
value to them because you you get you you look around you see the effects. That's that's really what's going on here. Again, if you want to get into that, show notes are going to have that. Um, we have we have like other fun headlines that I guess can wait. Governor Pete Ricketts is saying, and, and this is, uh, I think one or two of these links came from uh, Mercedes in Nebraska, but uh, NTV, ABC, local Nebraska TV, Governor Ricketts, if trend continue, uh, trends continue, Nebraska will not have enough hospital beds. Yeah, so so the flatten the curve under a, a more direct fear-mongering local propaganda seems to be coming back. Counterpoint to this story, and this, this is this is like, excuse me, technically, scientifically true, but still a, a gross misrepresentation. Governor Pete Ricketts says marijuana can create psychosis. If used conscientiously, obviously cannabis has an overall effect that's going to reduce psychosis, but yes, you want to look at freak side effect cases and hypotheticals, fine. Um, Peter Thiel is richer than ever as tech wins eclipse macro mess. I, one more one more data point in the narrative that, that we, we have to keep covering, unfortunately, that uh, under... Corona controls the rich have gotten richer and richer and richer and richer. And uh, a lot of this is happening in tech. But, of course, uh, the the enduring sector that, despite macro shifts, always seems to make out well. Of course, the banking industry uh, and the tech industry being the big winners right now. Peter Thiel, one more, one more data point. Uh, that's Peter Thiel's talking again and again about his big rule for success. Quote, competition is for losers. It means go where other people haven't yet, something he famously did in the 1990s by co-founding PayPal Holding Inc., and then even more famously in the 2000s by throwing $500,000 at a hooded Harvard kid and something called the Facebook. Now, how did the Facebook beat MySpace? So many other potential uh, conspiracy theories could be true. Conspiracy theories, excuse me, could be true behind this manipulation, and we know that the public narrative that we're getting from Peter Thiel about himself is not the most accurate representation about uh, the the true backstory. But uh, look at the bottom line. Who's getting richer at the expense of whom else? (laughs) Right? And and I've been saying this, and I I think I've been saying it in other words for many years, but now I I think my, my talking point is, is the most refined in describing the purpose of government to make the super rich richer at the expense of everybody else. And current events around corona and and, and the flow of capital uh, makes this a a more undeniable fact of of modern reality governments that, that we all experienced than ever before. I just want I want to go back to the get off the couch, get off the sidelines. How can you not be motivated when you see stuff like this? Next headline, similarly enraging from usatoday.com. Police County Attorney's Office hides 738,000 records in Kentucky sex abuse case. If you're not 
outraged, you're not paying attention. And, and, and this reminds me of something that I learned a long time ago from covering the news and, and looking at alternative sources, looking at the you know better analyses. There are there have been for years in this country under the war on drugs, police departments that have raped test kits that are sitting on the shelves that have never been processed while they are processing cannabis urinalysis and and busting people for simple possession and probation violations for shit like that. And and, and if you this is <clears throat> this is a scary takeaway. But again, why the education, the perspective of what we do with the show and as libertarians is so important. Yes, there are governments who by their actions, because actions speak louder than words, by their actions are telling you that they don't mind you getting raped again as much as they are concerned about someone smoking cannabis again. Why are there no good cops, perhaps? They're all protecting the system. They're all part of this. There are some good, well-intentioned cops out there, for sure. Few and far between, and fewer who are allowed to stay, perhaps, on local forces where they're not a threat to this racket. So anyway, to the story, Louisville Metro Police concealed at least 738,000 records documenting the sexual abuse of Explorer Scouts by two officers then lied to keep the files from the public records show, the Louisville Courier-Journal, part of the USA Today Network, last year requested all records on the sexual abuse of minors by two officers in the Explorer Scout program for young people interested in law enforcement careers. Police officials in the Jefferson County Attorney's Office said they couldn't comply and insisted all the records had been turned over to the FBI for its investigation. But that wasn't true, according to records the Courier-Journal recently obtained in the appeal one of its open records case. In fact, the department still had at least 738,000 records, which the city allowed to be deleted. The records could shed light. I just, I, do I need to keep going? I, I don't think I do. It's, I, when you're ready, when you're ready to, to accept this part of, of our reality, there's a lot of people, a lot of America. Why does it continue? A lot of Americans are, are in denial of this, that, uh, that the fundamental nature of the American police state is criminal. And I don't mean what you see on paper alone. I mean the abuse of authority that happens behind the scenes to cover up what even under the current paradigm is actual criminal behavior. Because I say it's criminal to arrest somebody for a victimless crime. Current paradigm says under the police state, that's okay. That's the premise of the drug war. The current paradigm says it's wrong to traffic children and 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 conduct sexual abuse or or to pardon it or defend it or be an accessory to it in any way. And you, you if you take an honest look at what is the greatest source of that injustice, you have to account for that which is done and, and excused and made possible because of the police state. Our next story, similarly disturbing from The Hill, sent to us by Chris Cole in the producer's chat. That's Chris Cole, yes, the victims of family law. Global Child Sex Abuse Network uncovered with ties to U.S. A tip earlier this year from the U.S. has led to the uncovering of a major child sex abuse network in Australia with ties to the United States, Canada, Asia, Europe, and New Zealand. 
we can take comfort from the fact that this is being uh, addressed, that in some ways people within government are, are actually using their power to turn on others, because if that wasn't happening, this wouldn't be possible. It would, it would keep being buried and buried and buried and buried. But there's more. We have to keep digging. According to the Associated Press, Australian authorities announced Wednesday that 16 men have been arrested in New South Wales, Queensland, and Western Australia in recent months on 828 charges of sexually abusing children and distributing child abuse material and bestiality. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I can't. I don't want to. I don't, I, I don't need to. I, 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 to dig into this because I can accept it. I can accept it and say that uh, I am doing everything I can with, with my life and the conscientious choices that I make to stop this, to say, no, this is not, this is not okay. This is not acceptable to allow an institution that on such a wide scale empowers child abuse. When you're ready, I hope you'll do the same. CBS News, a couple other stories about, you know, this one, I think we're going to have to come back. I'm just going to tease this, but let you all know that we're not ignoring the story. CBS News says this, that when kids have regressed due to COVID-19 restrictions with some potty trained kids going back to diapers, experts say, yeah, we're going, to come, we're going to have to come back to that next week. We're, you're just Maybe Cigars and Sunsets tonight, 5 o'clock uh, Mountain Time. So it's 4 o'clock Pacific. It's so early. It's a messed up type daylight saving. Uh, but there is, a, there is a response to this unfair surveillance online exam software sparks global student revolt. Kids who can't are not taking this. Mm. Uh, just a, uh, another quick headline. We're going to breeze through a couple and get to your comments about naming this bunk. YouTube was down this week for an hour. Not ignoring that story, but I've been looking for more information on this, and we don't know much else. YouTube, of course, such a powerhouse in realizing the potential of the media, uh, independent media, and the era of the Internet, and then bought by Google inevitably, and now Alphabet is the parent company. The headline we have from The Verge, YouTube went down around the world, but it's now fixed. And it just it is weird, a universal tech glitch at YouTube where it's down for an hour, I'm skeptical. I'm looking at this like a conspiracy theorist, really, going, global outage of videos failing to load for an hour? I'm more inclined to believe that this is a test than a tech outage just because there's so much money that so many people, that YouTube itself lost going down for an hour. There's a cost to this. And if it was a tech outage, we've seen regional tech outages before that would that would be more believable. But just and and even the Verge has it. YouTube has recovered from a seemingly worldwide outage that prevented videos from loading roughly an hour. Yeah. Something else going on here, and we don't have the information yet to to say anything more than that, unfortunately. From UPI.com, flying taxi takes off over Seoul, South Korea, and demonstration flight. Yeah, yeah. I know. When the fuck are we all going to have self-flying cars? Really, like, come on. Come on, government. We know. We know. We've seen the Jetsons in our childhoods. Shit. Decades ago. It's Why do, why do we not all have self-flying cars by now, drone taxis? Because government, this is why we can't have nice things. The technology is there. And, and South Korea offered a glimpse of a science fiction future on Wednesday with a demonstration flight of a two-seat drone taxi in Seoul as the government outlined ambitious plans to commercialize urban air travel by 2025. Hmm. 
So even in, in, in South Korea, five years perhaps to full implementation of this technology, that we would have had a long time ago if it wasn't for government getting in the way. I think we can comfortably say that. <clears throat> Further demonization of uh, Boogaloo extremists from Wire.com. The FBI says Boogaloo extremists bought 3D printed machine gun parts. Wall hangers, mostly. Um, yeah, and, and just anytime they try to demonize anybody other than government getting armed, it's not the pot calling the kettle black. It's a uh, nuclear bomb going off and complaining about a dick flick. Uh, and I mean, yeah, flick, yeah, like, yeah, flick someone in the dick. Yeah, that's that's the relative violence that the, the worst demonization of these boogaloo extremists represent compared to the threat represented and, and, and how armed up government is. Uh, just to, to make things more difficult for our producer today, uh, we're going to go next to Pornhub.com, where the uh, Region 8 Libertarian Party representational rep nominations and speeches for May of 2020 have been posted. And uh, this is just, I, I yeah. Libertarians not afraid to talk about pornography, and there is nothing sexually deviant or even sexually related to this except that Pornhub provides a cover where you don't have to worry about being censored for political views. And I, I believe that's all there is to this story. If there's more to this, maybe CJ wants to jump on or someone in the comments wants to let me know. But I just thought this is worth sharing uh, to, to, to see that, yeah, very libertarian of us. Totally love it. Another just random social note headline we got to cover from EW.com Entertainment. CBS pledges Survivor Big Brother casts will now be 50% people of color. Following criticism from past contestants, shows like Survivor Big Brother and Love Island will include at least 50% of people of color in their casts moving forward. Uh, and that's all we're going to get to for today. Thank you for joining us and staying overtime for 20 minutes. We are going to check in with the comments real quick before we sign off. Uh, I don't think there's anything critical in the good news. CJ, you want to throw up some comments? Any any contest entries for today's name that bong bong name? Ribby, <laughs> Ribby Kai, <laughs> Ribby Kai, mother. Can we say that? We're saying fuck now. We're on YouTube, right? Check in the box. Any Ribby Kai, motherfucker? Yeah. I like it. Fun, clever. Not the winner for the name. Uh, don't be a statist. The Boogaloo Boys are only a myth to scare the Republicrats. No, no, that's not true. I, they, they are being mythologized. Uh, they are not being fabricated out of whole cloth as a myth. There is a legitimate uh, grassroots foundation, I think. I mean, barely. It's not like it's huge. Of, of Boogaloo Boys who want to go uh, up armored to protest and defend everybody. Uh, while wearing Hawaiian shirts under their tactical gear. I, I think that's a thing. Uh, there's there's definitely infiltrators, and, and I would remind everybody of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War meeting in their wind-down days and that, that happened in New Orleans, attended by six members, and it was something like two local cops, two FBI, one DEA, and one CIA, and not a single legit member who was not a government plant. Uh and the smaller the group, the bigger the percentage of infiltration may be as that becomes useful as a propaganda tool. Yeah, I know. Shocking, right? The FBI, we know, engages in uh, propaganda manipulation. And if they can just fight in the name of the law enforcement, well, they'll get away with it. CIA, too. What was that last one, CJ? Get that last one up there. I didn't read that, did I? Any more comments? Marijuana is great for anxiety, especially OG strains. Absolutely. Thank you, Loki209. <clears throat> 
any any other uh, okay 1054 a very obvious point here decrimming drugs greatly reduces concern of lacing and cutting with other other materials i've had a few less than enjoyable moments with a lace blunt <clears throat> uh that's yeah you know another huge turning point Thank you for pointing that out, that, that as, as a result of this incremental change, and a big thing that, that we got is a positive effect from the Silk Road as a thing. Thank you, St. Ulbricht, Ross Ulbricht, and, and his mother, patron saint of activist mothers, Len Ulbricht, who we've interviewed for the show. If you don't know the Silk Road story, learn it. Um, learn the story of Ross Ulbricht. And uh, I, I know I've had, I've had some weird experiences. I've had, like, headaches and weird side effects I've had. Um, I've definitely had coke that was cut, which is very common. It's easy to fake and just put baby powder or something and you know, ground up aspirin into coke. Um, yeah, it's getting past that nastiness. I don't know if this does it, but but certainly for cannabis. Um, and, and what's the greatest poisoning of drugs? Paraquat. Paraquat. If you don't know the story of paraquat. Go listen to the Joey Coco Diaz. Segment on that on, on on his story about drugs and his experience with paraquat or, or, or look it up, but it was something the government sprayed on cannabis. Uh, and this is like in the 80s or 70s or something. Oh man, it's disgusting, and it would fuck people up. It would really fuck people up. Um, all right, any other comments before we uh, before we take a peek at the good news and say goodbye? Don't be a statist. Adam's lying. Don't listen to him. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Statist. All right, all right, here we go. Don't be a status, says the Boogaloo Boys do not exist. All right, all right, Mr. Status. Maybe next week we'll we'll make this one of our, our dis- discussion topics because like I've looked at this at, at, with Antifa, and, and it, it, given that it's relatively small number but high impact, uh, I, I'm inclined to believe that it is <clears throat> primarily driven by corrupt interests as opposed to grassroots, but that there is a legitimate grassroots component. There are, uh, you know, and how much? I, I haven't asked that question. Like, how much of what we see of Antifa is grassroots versus astroturf slash infiltrators slash saboteurs? If I had to guess, I mean, I, I would say that the grassroots element, is, like, and this is like the extreme example. Uh, it might only might might be as little as thirty percent. I, I would say pretty good certainty, something like in the you know twenty five to fifty percent range. And yeah, like yeah, I'm saying at least fifty percent of people who you see on the streets in masks as Antifa are not legitimate grassroots members who are there for the generally publicly stated reasons of Antifa. All right, name this bong. Do we have a winner? Is it is it, is it my bong? Say CJ is the winner. No, all right. I don't know what's going on now. I'm gonna sign off. We're way over time. I love y'all. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. Don't forget to check out adversesdemand.com. Check us out on Patreon. Buy some merch. Go to Make Them Debate. Check out CigarFederation.com. We are doing cigars and sunsets tonight in just a few hours. Four o'clock Pacific, five o'clock Arizona time. In time for hour five. 25 p.m. sunset here. So if you'll join us and get a cigar at cigarfederation.com, promo code ADAM10. Did I say that right or did I rush it? I'm trying to get out of here and I got a cotton mouth. 
ADAM10, all caps, at CigarFederation.com. Get you 10% off your order. So please get your cigars there, especially if you want to try them. My favorite, JSK Nuts. Extremely relaxing experience. I love it. I love it. Uh, and then, of course, there, there's MakeThemDebate.com on the stage uh, or on the screen. And follow us at Gardenia at the Garden of Freedom. Hopefully, uh, CJ will join us for a smoke tonight with his JSK nug uh, with Cigars and Sunsets. With that being said, mwah. peace and love, y'all. Choose happiness and be excellent to each other. 